And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, and tonight it's a really, really special edition, as you're going to hear in the next three hours, of the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when certainly on this show, anything can happen. Remember, our new catchphrase is everything everywhere all at once. There's all kinds of stuff to distract us in the so-called mainstream. There's trials and there's tribulations and there's union strikes and there's, you know, politics endlessly. There's a, uh, a national government about to shut down totally absurdly, needlessly. All that stuff crowding all the news channels. And what we're going to talk about tonight on this show and what we're going to do to enlist our audience as agents of change behind this incredible discovery, which literally we made only in the last couple of weeks. And uh, thank goodness, because it's taken that much time to kind of put together a coherent presentation. What we're going to do tonight, I think, is going to, and if I say it modestly, it's because I, I kind of mean it, it's going to change history because what we're going to announce and lay out and show you is so incredibly checkable because nobody has to go to another planet. Nobody has to go to another website. Nobody has to go to another country. Everything we need to verify what we're going to talk about tonight is literally sitting in the United States of America in nitrogen coal vaults under Houston and has been sitting there for about half a century since Apollo 11 brought back the first samples when the first two men to walk on the moon in the modern era kneel safely to planet Earth, which was in the midsummer of 1969, July 1960. That, by the way, was the same moment that at JPL, where I happened to be for the um, uh, landing, um, we encountered something so bizarre because one of the official NASA employees, uh, news manager under, um, uh, I forget who the manager was at this point in time. Anyway, what I found so interesting even back then, and of course I find it doubly and triply, quadruply interesting now with the hindsight of, you know, decades, is that Bristow was squiring a guy dressed in one of those old Western dusters or the kind of uh, long coat that the uh, early Model T enthusiasts used to wear because the roads were all dusty and traffic, wheel traffic, you know, cars, you know, uh, uh, Ford's first little cars, they stirred up an awful lot of dust on dusty roads. So you wore this great big coat, this long coat called a duster. I wonder why. Anyway, so this guy is at JPL being squired around the press room by one of the official NASA employees by way of JPL. Again, his name was Frank Bristow. And he was introducing him to all of the major correspondents for all of the major newspapers, television networks, just not just from the United States, but from literally all over the world. Because this, of course, was the press corps 
2000, give or take, that was covering the incredible landing on the moon and return of the first astronauts, while simultaneously there was an unmanned Mariner mission, Mariner 6 and 7, that were destined to fly by the planet Mars within a few thousand miles, just a week or so after the Apollo 11 historic landing. So it was a very, very busy week at JPL, and I'm watching knowing nothing of what I know now. And I'm watching Bristow squire around this guy dressed very, very odd, like something out of the last century, like a cowboy who had kind of wandered in, you know, out of some kind of a time slip. And he's handing everybody in the press room a little packet. And, you know, dutifully, after being patient, I got mine and I open it up. And it's a little Mylar American flag, meaning the colors are wrong, but they're printed not on white paper or white whatever, but on Mylar, silver Mylar. And it, there's a little write-up, like a, like a one-page, uh, one-sheet. And it basically is claiming there in the NASA press room with thousands of the world press gathered to witness part two of this 1969 summer drama – Land of the moon, fly by Mars, that kind of thing. He's handing to all the major press people a, a broadsheet which basically claims that what we're seeing or what we saw on live television from the moon, astronauts walking on the lunar surface in dimly, weirdly, ghostly black and white from a uh, sole television camera set up outside the lunar module by uh, uh, Aldrin and, and Armstrong. This broadsheet and this guy with the duster is claiming that we never had gone to the moon, that everything we were seeing was taking place on a soundstage somewhere in Nevada. And for some reason, an official NASA spokesperson was squiring this guy around the press room, introducing him to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the L.A. Times – you know, Nippon Television, all of the guys, as if it was a serious effort by somebody to basically discombobulate and discredit everything that NASA that afternoon was doing in getting ready for the return of the astronauts in the Pacific and the flyby of Mariner 6 and subsequently a few days later, Mariner 7 past the planet Mars. It was bizarre then. It is triply bizarre now in hindsight decades later. What was NASA doing? Planting the meme that we, the United States, in fact, never went to the moon. I'll tell you what they were doing. They were planting propaganda. They were planting a story. They were planting a whole way of looking at the moon and looking at the national achievement and basically in an era where the concept of fake news hadn't even been voiced because that's decades in the future they were spreading fake news that someone somewhere in the big nine or big 12 whatever the you know upper ranking of the national press corps would have been then because we only had three networks remember they were planting the meme that all of this was pointless because it all was being faked on a soundstage in Nevada. And that meme has been very, very, very hard to kill, even after decades of overwhelming evidence 
in the other direction. There is a residuum of people that apparently will believe anything but the truth, particularly if they have to, uh, you know, raise a finger and kind of check things. No one knows how to check things anymore. We don't teach in school the process of figuring out the truth and thereby will be our detriment. Anyway, tonight what we're going to do is to basically talk about and show you what it is that NASA from the get-go was very carefully preparing the groundwork to cover up. So even if someone across the years and decades stumbled over the truth, stumbled over the evidence, published it on something which back in 1969 was not even envisioned by most people in the culture, in the, uh, in the country, that is the Internet, where anybody can kind of post almost anything, at least for a while. Um, that distant day when democracy would rule and the most outrageous and absurd claims would be freely available uh, for you to peruse and examine and think about and cogitate upon and try to decide, is this true? Is this, where's the evidence? Where's the backup? Where's the sourcing, et cetera, et cetera. All of that would come decades in the future as this guy literally was squired around the press room handing out his garbage to every reporter who had his hand out because it was news. Well, it's now 50-some years later, and tonight we're going to show you what it is that NASA has so assiduously worked so hard at so many different levels, including planting the meme that we never did any of this amazing stuff that they've been trying to keep secret for half a century. The idea that, in fact, there are, A, not only ET artifacts on the moon, but as part of their collections, each of the missions, Apollo 11, Apollo 12, 14, 15, 16, and 17, returned a total of almost a 1,000 pounds of moon rocks and moon dust and moon dirt from the surface of our nearby world Till in fact, it came to pass that it was here on Earth, that it was accessible to everyone who would simply lift a finger and a spark of curiosity in trying to find out the truth. And the reason this is so important and has so many different implications is because once, once you get past remote sensing, once you get past photographs, which of course... You know, in this day and age with AI, nothing is impossible to fake. It just takes time and not much time anymore because you've got commercial versions, uh, chat GBT. There's all kinds of background versions at the cutting edge of, uh, of digital science and uh, algorithms, which can accomplish in seconds what it used to take years to sift through in terms of terabytes of data. All of that is now before us and it's kind of like a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, it gives us access to extraordinary information. On the other hand, it raises the specter that everything we think is real, everything we look at, is at some level, if not totally, completely made up. In other words, discerning truth from lies has not gotten easier. It's gotten harder. And next week, when we do our AI show, our first of many, I'm sure, one of the questions I'm going to ask our expert is, well, 
There used to be a very interesting movie with uh, Cary Grant about jewel robberies, and I think it was called To Catch a Thief. How do you catch a thief? Well, in that particular movie, which is quite good, you set a thief to catch a thief. You set someone who knows uh, what the game is to catch someone trying to operate the game. Well, it's going to be the same with AI. The problem is that it's not there yet at the democratic level where ordinary citizens can take their favorite AI and set it to try to figure out if a given post or a given image or a given anything is the truth or is a lie. But it's coming, and we're going to talk about that in great detail uh, next Saturday night. In the interim, I want you to all go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. Uh, that's our homepage. Click on that. That will take you to tonight's show for Saturday, September 23rd, 2023. And you will click on tonight's banner, which says, Announcing the Enterprise Mission Avi Loeb Challenge. Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. And under the uh, uh, promo to listen to the show at the bottom of my little peroration there about tonight, Click on my name where it says Fast Links to Items. That will take you to the um, uh, inputs on the other side of Midnight's uh, Radio with Pictures page. And you will see item number one. With all the other news making headlines all over the world, from strikes to trials to politics to disasters to all the stuff out there, one thing that has happened this week is probably going to live longer than any other news story. And that is that NASA, uh, under the aegis of the Independent Study Team report on unified, unidentified anomalous phenomena, they issued their report this week and even held a uh, modest one-hour press conference, including the administrator, former Senator Bill Nelson, as the administrator of NASA, who said as part of the opening discussion of what this study had recommended to the agency that they have indeed set up an um, independent office at NASA headquarters to study anomalous phenomena. Now, by definition, science is, you know, it's, it's anomalous. You study and try to learn a science of a new thing so you can understand how it works and how it impacts the world. So it's almost kind of redundant that NASA would set up an office to study anomalous phenomena. But of course, we know what they're really doing. They're going to be studying UFOs slash UAP, which has changed its name many different times as a way to kind of um, backfill on the bad um, outlines and the bad in, in, you know, intimations and implications of UFOs for many, many decades. What's interesting is that reporters, after they write, you know, UAP, they start writing UFO. So I don't think the name change is going to work. And frankly, I don't think it should, because historically, you know, UFOs are the moniker under which this extraordinary continuing anomaly continues to reign. So why am I singling out the NASA Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena Report, because the, step, the, the, the two-step process, which was 
you know, put in place a year ago, is that NASA would appoint this independent group of 16 or 17 independent scientists, world-class scientists, top of their field from all over the world under a NASA contract, and they would study the information and the data that was provided by the Pentagon and some other sources, and they would then come to a reasoned conclusion as to whether NASA should get involved in UAP slash UFOs. And as Administrator Nelson said many, many times, he wants to take the field from speculation into science. Well, that's a very laudable objective. Now, what's really intriguing is they led off their report by saying that none of the current data indicates an extraterrestrial phenomenon, which, of course, is a lie. And even NASA should know better than to try to get away at the get-go with an outright lie because everybody, of course, following these conversations and following these studies and following the politics knows it's a lie. So why are they playing the game this way? Well, I tried to ask Bassett, and he is hopelessly, and I say that with, uh, with uh, you know, tender care, he is hopelessly mired in the political process of Washington and thinks this is the only way that they can politically proceed. I uh, will disagree, and when he's back on the show, we will have an interesting conversation. Because what you do when you make announcements that fly in the face of everything that people already know in their bones, in their gut, that the government has been lying about extraterrestrial phenomena for over 70 years, it's very hard to hold a political line which basically says, don't admit anything. So NASA starts out by saying there's no evidence of extraterrestrials and or aliens. And then it proceeds to outline the uh, rather interesting, you know, vanguard of a study, which at the end of that process, if they follow their own rules, will ultimately wind up with them having to change that initial take, that initial political statement. Because, of course, the evidence is all around us from all kinds of different sources, from incredibly credible military pilots with eyewitness reports to radar to all kinds of other, you know, digital media, records, archives, film, eyewitness testimony going back, uh, you know, even before Roswell. So ultimately, NASA in this little dog and pony show game that they are playing dutifully to the Pentagon as a second as opposed to lead, they will ultimately, if they are honest, they will come to the conclusion that UAP exists there are intelligent beings flitting around the earth tonight whose destinations and origins we are uh, quite in the dark about because, again, just because someone says something doesn't mean that it's true. And just because an alien tells you something, to me, doesn't mean you should follow their lead and believe them without asking a lot of questions. So that's why many decades ago, I decided that UFOs, or the modern parlance UAPs, was almost a fruitless study. It was kind of pointless to get mired in all the soap opera and all the weird things that have been happening and, you know, the food fights and the recriminations, you know, investigator against investigator, investigator against the government, the government against uh, flakes and crazies and all that. In other words, that to me 
looked even then, decades ago, like a bottomless pit, like a morass, like a, like a, well, I'll say it, like a cesspool. And nothing scientific could come out of this incredible, weird, you know, parlance of truth, lies, and videotape all meshed together. So I began to look at the possibility after I was hit over the head with the Viking data on the face on Mars. I began to look at artifacts, at ruins, at architecture, at geometry, at mathematics, at the things that differentiate to any five-year-old a natural thing from an artificial thing. And I have said over the years that I will continue to do this because ruins stand still. And all you have to do is follow the current soap opera between disclosures and investigators with political agendas and agencies with agendas and the Pentagon with their agendas and NASA with a new agenda. And it's almost impossible to sort out, even with the best of intentions and the best process, the fake stuff from the real stuff. But as I've said over and over again, and we'll reiterate tonight, the thing that makes ancient E.T. ruins starting with the moon and Mars and into the rest of the solar system, the thing that makes this different from the insane soap opera of ufology or UAPs or whatever is that ruins stand still. And if you're really lucky, and in addition to ruins, you find a library like scholars and archaeologists have for the last several centuries been looking in the Middle East or in the Mesoamerican jungles or anywhere on Earth for archaeology. They look for libraries because you can't have a current human-level civilization without writing things down for the next generation. In the midst of all that, when NASA dumped this uh, report on everyone uh, a couple, three days ago, when I went to page 33, I found, as Hitchcock would say, the MacGuffin. Because on page 33, this is written by the independent uh, study team that NASA you know, contracted with a year ago, which came out this week with their final formal report. And I quote, currently planned, or existing NASA missions can widen their scope to including searching for extraterrestrial technosignatures in planetary atmospheres, on planetary surfaces, or in near-Earth space. These searches generally wouldn't require changes in hardware or data acquisition, but may simply require new directions in data analysis. Let me repeat that. May simply require new directions in data analysis. So translated from Washingtonese into English, what does that mean? It means the techno signatures, that is devices, artifacts, hardware, machines, computers, you know, lunches, anything left by an extraterrestrial could show up in a planetary search as a techno-signature. In other words, a, an object, an artifact, uniquely only produced by a 
technological civilization, and in this case, by an extraterrestrial one. And they include on planetary surfaces. Well, think about it. If as opposed to jumping into UFOs and things that go bump in the night and lights in the sky and cell phone videos and all the other crap that they're going to have to go through to try to find a signal, if NASA only looks at its own calibrated terabytes of images acquired over decades of the moons, Mars, moons of Saturn, moons of Jupiter, Mercury, clouds of Venus, everywhere we have sent spacecraft or NASA has sent spacecraft all across the solar system. If they simply develop a protocol to, with AI and machine learning, which of course can look through millions of images much quicker than a room full of human beings, if they simply program the right algorithms to look for geometry of artificiality on their own database, the dawning of a new age will come. Well, when Nelson announced at the press conference that NASA would be heavily using AI and machine learning, I knew that something had been set up correctly to where now you need to merely in this new office, this UAP office at NASA headquarters, you merely need to fit in the data and out will come overwhelming evidence of an extraterrestrial civilization or maybe even more than one because what we're looking at, of course, seems to be different epics who had different levels of technology. And again, that will be available and readily uh, recognizable by uh, an AI or a machine learning program. All NASA has to do is to formally announce that this is what they're going to do in terms of searching their own database and the game will be over. Because any true neutral AI programmed to look for the geometric signatures of artificiality amid the terabytes of photographic information that NASA has acquired all across the solar system in the last 50 years, all they have to do is publish that and then have it peer-reviewed by outside experts, outside AI, outside panels, and bingo, we will have won. However, there's a bit of a bureaucratic minefield between that goal and where we are tonight. So what we're going to do is we're going to introduce something totally brand new, totally off the wall. And to do that, I need to uh, kind of introduce one of our, our members, Robert Morningstar, because frankly, without Robert's asking what appeared to be a very, very simple question, we would not be having this show tonight. So let me do the setup, and then when we come back from the break, I'll give you, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Uh, I sent around a NASA document, a preliminary science report from Apollo 16, about two weeks ago. And I just linked to the uh, NASA site where all this literature is carefully stored and is uh, carefully archived. Um, when I sent it around, the one person who responded was um, was uh, Robert, and he said to me said to me very 
um, innocently, well, what is that thing on the cover? Why should I be looking at that? And I hadn't really looked at the cover, so I did. And lo and behold, it turned out that it was a black and white image of what's called a thin section, which is a uh, slice of a rock. And we'll go through how this is all done when we come back from the break. But it was in black and white and not in color. And what's so interesting is that Robert, even in black and white, recognized there was something weird about it. And when we come back, I'll tell you what the weirdness was and what led to our incredible discovery and tonight's program. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, September 23rd, 2023. Two threes, two threes. Interesting. I hadn't noticed that before. Anyway, so um, Robert asked me this very simple question, and I gave him the standard NASA answer, which is that these were photographic, photographic, um, photogeological thin sections. When when geologists get rocks here on Earth or you go to the moon and you pick up rocks and bring them back, one of the ways they are analyzed, uh, in fact, if we go to the other side of midnight.com, we can actually see an item number four. I'll get back to three in a minute. Uh, what a thin section looks like. This is a meteorite 
being held in the gloved hands of a technician at NASA. And it was picked up somewhere, either in the Antarctic or maybe in, in the Sahara Desert or whatever. When these objects, these extraterrestrial messengers, are brought back to NASA by various teams, um, they are sliced with diamond saws into very, very, very thin sections. And then those thin sections, if they're thin enough, the minerals in the rock literally are transparent. They refract uh, light. They polarize light. We've talked about polarization a lot lately. And these are tools that are used on a microscope stage to look at the rock and to identify crystals and minerals and assemblages of minerals, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I, I, I gave Robert the, the NASA answer. This is a black and white of a thin section of one of the Apollo 16 lunar rocks, which had been posted as part of the uh, cover of this report. And then I looked at it a little closer and I thought, wait a minute, that's the NASA answer. But what I was seeing, and I hadn't looked at it in years. In fact, I, I must confess, I never really looked at any of these thin sections because, you know, you've seen one stained glass window looking thin section crystal. You've seen them all, or at least if you're not a geologist, they kind of all look alike. But I went looking for the color version of the cover of this Apollo 16 report. And it was very hard to find because they're, they're not labeled uh, very clearly. And I just grabbed another one by, by, you know, random chance. And I brought it into, uh, you know, imaging programs, downloaded it, brought it in, looked at it and went, oh my God, because there, right in front of me, if I've been looking at any of these images from thin sections of the moon rocks brought back from Apollo, this game would have been over decades ago because in those thin sections that I'm posting tonight, starting with item number five, and then six, seven, eight, uh, those, those, you know, five, six, seven, eight, look at them, look at them carefully. Take them into an imaging program. Look at them really carefully. They appear to be a cross-section in a matrix of various stages of extraterrestrial machines. Some of them are fragments. Those would be bigger machines. Some of them have obviously been cut in two by the diamond saws used to cut apart the rock. Remember, these are rocks from Apollo 16 brought back by the Apollo 16 astronauts, John, uh, John uh, Young, who was the commander of that mission. And they were sliced and analyzed in Houston at the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. Samples were sent all over the world to thousands of consulting scientists in laboratories and universities literally all around the planet. These, these samples were not kept quietly in Houston. So as I looked at the first color thin section, and I could see not only fragments of bigger machines, but what looked to be like little tiny nano machines, fully assembled nano technology, obviously of an extraordinarily advanced culture, left in the regolith on the moon, smashed together. You're going to hear a term tonight called brescias. Brescias are most of what the moon rocks are composed of. What's a brescia? 
It's basically a smashed together rock created by the pressures of meteor impacts and shock waves uh, far away. And what it does is it smashes up the regolith, which is the lunar soil. It smashes pieces of other rock that has been fragmented by previous impacts together to create a new rock called a breccia. And most of the rocks that were picked up by the Apollo astronauts were these smashed together moon rocks created by older rocks which had been broken apart by endless millions, if not billions of years of meteor impact on the airless lunar surface. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at cross-sections of smashed up Brescia moon rocks brought back by the astronauts. And if you look very carefully at item number four, let me just make sure that I've got the right item up here, okay. Item number four, yep, item number, I'm sorry, item number five, yeah. Uh, that is what a thin section of these particular Apollo 16 moon rock, whose number I don't even have, this has been put together uh, so speedily in the last two weeks. Um, when you look at it in close-up, like if you look at item number six, which is a close-up of number five, you will see what appears to be incredible manufactured multi-dimensional geometry. Not once, not twice, but again and again and again all over the thin section covered. It's basically like, like a millimeter or less of actual moon rock as a thin section. So then you go to number seven. And there in the upper left-hand corner, you see a stunning uh, object, an artifact, something that does not belong in a vaporized or, or smashed together moon rock. In fact, at the bottom left, you can see one of these like rods, three-dimensional rods looking like some kind of framework. And you can see it trailing off against that white background, which appears to be a melted wire. You can see the wire actually trailing off. Why would it be melted? Because look at all the little white things all over the image. Those are objects cut in half by the diamond saw and the diamond saw creates heat of friction. And so because it was somewhere between the saw and that little white oval, the little wire literally melted from the friction of the saw and there you can see it. Well, you can look at all the other examples. We'll go through some of this in more detail as we go through our various uh, um, discussions with our panel members. Tonight, we've got uh, John Brandenburg, who, of course, is a uh, nuclear plasma physicist, been involved in several major um, NASA efforts and DOD efforts, including the Clementine mission to send an unmanned uh, robotic spacecraft on a military mission back in 1992 to the moon. He has written, he was part of our independent Mars investigation. That's how John and I first met. Uh, I asked him way back when if certain craters on the moon could be the imprint of nuclear weaponry, you know, bombs and whatever, and what others might be caused by particle beams or lasers and that was the beginning of an incredibly long and fruitful conversation and friendship stretching now over decades. So when I looked at all this, one of the first people I wanted to talk to about it was John Brandenburg. So without further ado, John, welcome to the other side of midnight. 
and let's get right into what I wanted you to talk about, which is something very parallel to our discovery, which is Avi Loeb's uh, odyssey to the South Pacific and his discovery through magnetic raking at the bottom of the South Pacific Ocean, like, you know, two miles or something down, of objects, melted objects, which he analyzed in terms of their nuclear and chemical structure as being a very weird non-meteoritic assemblage of, um, of elements, which you don't normally see in solar system sampling from all over, including the moon, including meteorites, including earth rocks, et cetera, et cetera. So that was how we kind of began our conversation. It turns out that this week you have a scientific paper which has been published out of India addressing, in fact, this particular problem. So let's start there. How have you been following Loeb's expedition and what are your conclusions from what Loeb found? Because frankly, the title of tonight's show, The Abbey Loeb Challenge, we are challenging Dr. Loeb to apply the same technologies he's applied to what he found under the South Pacific to the lunar samples resident in Houston, about 840 pounds of rock and soil and regolith and fines, as they're called, if he applies even one thousandth of the diligence he has shown in his South Pacific expedition, we will have an answer within days. Are there, in fact, micro-machines and technological fragments immersed, embedded in the matrix of the Brescia moon rocks the Apollo astronauts returned over 50 years ago to Earth? John? Yes, yes. Uh, great pleasure and honor to be on your show, uh, Richard. And uh, yes, uh, I have been following Avi Loeb's um, uh, work uh, for several years now because he began with this, uh, looking at this 10 to 1 length to width. Amuamua. Amuamua uh, that came cruising out of the sun. It approached from the sun side. And uh, he, he noted several things about it, that it was at the exact average velocity for the surrounding stars. So you couldn't figure out which way it came from, which star it came from. It came from the sun side, and then we only detected it once it had scooted past the Earth. And when they started interrogating it with laser uh, radar beams, it sped up <laughs> to get out of the solar system mm. to make get away. Uh, pretty suspicious, and he he immediately said this this was no asteroid and it was no comet. John, said, John, hang on, like hang an on. Interstellar probe by somebody. Hang on, hang on. This was the this was the fall in October of I believe right. 2017. And now he has uh, very much been looking for other evidence that uh, we are being probed by. Um, people, uh, in some interstellar power. And uh, he's found evidence of this in this meteor that came in, or let's call it an... Well, hang on. Let's jump ahead here. I want to say on the record that on this show, I was the first to ever say that a Muamua was an interstellar intelligently designed well, craft. That's, and that's a very good thing that you said that. And Loeb followed that 
but he followed it looking for kind of current mainstream explanations. I think now he's fastened on the idea it might be a solar sail, and I think it's something much, well, much, much more advanced. Uh, that, not, I, I think it was a much more advanced device, and, um, uh, you know, a, a solar sail does not come in from interstellar space uh, like this thing did and leave. Well, what's really weird is it was like it was parked in the path of the solar system. So we walked up on it like it was not moving. And it it, right. it was basically the encounter velocity of us orbiting the galaxy and it sitting almost motionless that resulted in the, in the velocities that were observed that made it clear it was an interstellar object. The first ever known. Yeah, that's that's right, and uh, he's been um, attracted a great deal of hostility from the community because you know we've been the academic academia is dependent on grants from NASA and the uh, scientific uh, National Science Foundation, and they don't want any discussion of any extraterrestrials at all. <laughs> I'm sorry, they don't. Well, they will be over and, overwhelmed by by reality. Anyway. So, yes. so Loeb yes. has been on this uh, kind of interesting mission, self-appointed. Yes. And, uh, he was threatened with being fired, even though he's a tenured. He was head of the department, and he says, "Good, fire me. I'm tired of doing all this paper, stupid paperwork as head of the department." <laughs> he couldn't be. Uh, he couldn't be actually fired from the university because he's got tenure. And uh, you also must realize that the uh, Israeli defense chief. You know, he's Israeli. Um, his uh, he grew up in Israel, and the defense chief, who is in charge of space, has said not only are there extraterrestrials out there, but the U.S. government has a treaty with them, a secret treaty of some sort. And um, I believe that was uh, said in 2014. You know what bothers me, John, is that someone of that caliber with that position in the Israeli defense force and given the amount of money we spend, you know, we send to Israel every year. It's, yes. it's, 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 it's a huge political uh, impact on American politics. The fact that someone high up in the uh, Israeli government could say something like that and nobody in the mainstream repeats it or asks him, what the hell do you mean? Is, I, I know is, it's, it, it's, 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 it's very frustrating because it's like, there are certain things by agreement someone has decided we are not supposed to know, which goes back to artifacts, because I find it yes. much easier to, to unveil artifacts than these ET encounters with UFOs, space people, spaceships, and all that. Remember, there's been this whole hue and cry now since that uh, congressional hearing a few weeks ago where one of the um, witnesses talked about alien spaceships the government has, our government, yes. and alien yes. bodies and all that. The difference between what we're announcing tonight and any of this other stuff is by law, the stuff we're announcing tonight must be available for independent scientific study. So if Abby Loeb wants to really go down in history as the guy who proved that we're not alone, there's 842 pounds of stuff sitting in Houston just waiting for him to knock on well, the door. It, you know, the science fiction, you know, the 
a science fiction era scenario that extraterrestrials had bases on the moon appeared for the first time in uh, 1957 in the movie Mysterians, the same people who brought you the movie, the Godzilla movies. Hmm. You know, they had, uh, they had UFO abductions of these uh, hot Japanese girls <laughs> uh, and uh, that got everybody interested. And uh, they also had, uh, you know, alien bases on the moon, and finally one near Mount Fuji, which, uh, you know, caused a, a, a very serious reaction by the uh, world's powers. So are you saying that through their media, the Japanese were in on the secret and they were trying to kind of blow the it lid was, off? It's as, if, it's as if somebody gave them that script, um, uh, you know, out of Langley in, in, um, in Virginia. I mean, we were... We were still heavily involved in the Japanese government in 1947. It was only a few years. Oh, yeah, of course. Two of course. years after. I mean, uh, that, that, well, this is 1957, so it was, it was 12 years after, uh, let's see, 57. Anyway, it was about, um, you know, 12 years after World War II was over. I mean, the ruins in Tokyo were still smoking. And uh, and the United States uh, basically advised the Japanese government on just about everything it did when they could use the bathroom. And, so uh, so you're you're saying we don't have a lot of time if you can only spend another yeah, ten yeah, minutes I, with I, us. I, I, let's just say that that idea has been around for a long time, along with UFO abductions and even animal mutilations. That was in the thing uh, with James Arness. The original uh, 1955 mm-hmm. um, ET movie, who you know, based on who goes there. So anyway, just to just to cut to the chase, the idea that uh, anybody bothering us or trying to investigate us would put up bases on the moon uh, is is a very standard science fiction scenario, which of course um, is could have been planted by the government. Who knows? And that if if there had been those sorts of structures on the moon, and uh, let's just say, uh, well, everything on the moon is preserved. The, you know, the rocks are, you know, close to four billion years old, four and a half billion years old. Um, so, well, when you say preserve, remember the operative process on the moon is smash and grab. Absolutely, smash when, and grab. I mean, they, they people are looking at the moon all the time, and they find fireballs on the lunar surface from asteroid impacts all the time. I mean, asteroids don't burn up in the atmosphere on the moon. It doesn't have one. So they just crash into the surface and they make these nice bright sparks. So, and there's micrometeor for every meteorite you see, there's a a million uh, specks of dust that crash into the moon. So even if you built a structure and then abandon it, it would get hammered to pieces in a million and years. And then the pieces are redistributed and redistributed oh, and redistributed. See, 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 see I, I keep kicking myself that I didn't think of this decades ago because I never imagined that the, that the temperatures and pressures would allow for actual individual pieces. And again, if you look at my samples, five, six, seven, mm-hmm. and eight, as we'll get to when we bring the other panelists on, there's, sure. there's tons of machine-like looking things. John, when you look at this, what do you yeah, think I know. of? I've looked at them. It, some of them look uh, quite uh, fascinating. They look like fragments of, 
technology. I will freely say that. Okay, so so for, for, all right, but see that's and it's still quite, it's quite you know it's I mean in my own science fiction novel about the collapse of the UFO cover up, I had all these bases on the moon, and uh, that they had some of them had changed hands quite violently. Okay, for people that have no idea how we're going to go from presenting these images tonight to where we get real science, we need to walk through what Loeb did with his samples. Because what yes, he so, did after okay, he... Hang on, let me, let me do the setup. Yeah, okay. After he published that Oumuamua was probably artificial, again, right. he's the second guy, I'm the first, and he came out with a whole bunch of evidence. We have totally different evidence, but it's so complimentary. He then turned his idea to our attention to UFOs or UAP well, and the he actually an object that came in at interstellar velocities. Well, hang on, like, hang on, hang on. I'm done with the setup. He okay. set up this thing at Harvard called Project Galileo. And he's been funded by DOD and NASA money and he started looking at setting up like what Alan Hynek did decades ago um from Northwestern uh, I'm sorry, no, 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 Northeastern, he, he, he would set up cameras. That was Project Galileo. And then he tripped over this 2014 Defense Department report. Because yep. remember, we have radar probing the solar system in all directions. Well, we have satellites watching. And now. we have satellites looking down at the Earth and all that. The DOD published in, 1914, oh, 19, in 2014 that a meteor, an object, obviously of interstellar origin because it smacked into the earth in excess of escape velocity from the sun at this distance yes. had been tracked all the way through initial high altitudes down to the surface and then it dunked itself in the ocean so it's there was a disintegrated yeah so there was a pretty good area Loeb got intrigued with because what he wanted to do was to somehow get money get a submersible down to the ocean floor, drag, you know, kind of some kind of a sled around looking for fragments. Turns out that he was looking for magnetic fragments. So if you drag very easy to collect stuff. That yeah, way. exactly. And when he brought it up, he had something so unusual in terms of elemental and isotopic content that he yeah. published all over the world in major media without waiting for peer review and papers and all that that he'd found an interstellar artifact that had disintegrated in Earth's atmosphere and he'd recovered some samples. That's yes, where I've that, analyzed it. That was no meteorite. Hang on. That's where the fun begins because just because something is from outer space doesn't make it extraterrestrial. Just because something is no. interstellar doesn't make it extraterrestrial, i.e. artificial. But you looked at the composition of yes. the objects that Loeb recovered, and you have come to a startling, stunning, amazing scientific conclusion. Have yes. at it. Okay. Well, you, the first thing you do is you look at the, uh, the, the you look at the natural abundance of of stuff in the solar system, and which matches the spectra of nearby stars. So that's fairly standard. A relative abundance of elements, not the actual isotopes. That's more detailed. Um, but anyway, uh, you you look at that and you look at the meteorites that we find generally have that relative abundance of me, of uh, 
of minerals, of elements. And this thing is completely alien. It looks, in fact, like melted aerospace alloy. It's got a lot of titanium and aluminum in it. And it's got iron because, of course, it was magnetic. So they picked up stuff that was magnetic. But it has almost no nickel in it. Nickel and iron are always associated in meteorites, uh, about to, you know, 10 to 1, you know, roughly 10% nickel for every, uh, you know, of the, uh, of the iron nickel uh, arrangement. Okay, then you, then you look even deeper, and you notice it's full of beryllium, lithium, uranium. And also That's thorium. a bizarre combo. Well, these, there's, these are three very rare elements. One is very heavy, that's uranium. And then another, the other two are very, very unfavored. The, the universe likes to make uh, helium from hydrogen, and then it skips over lithium and beryllium. It hardly makes any of that at all. Then it makes a lot of oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen. Uh, but so... But this thing is full of beryllium and lithium and uranium, three very rare elements, except if you have a melted thermonuclear weapon. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, my God, John. Wait, you mean someone sent us a nuke from interstellar yes. space I mean, and it, it didn't go off? Yes. It, well, it, it obviously didn't go off, so it burned up in the atmosphere. It burned up in the atmosphere. Now, the, the, the best face you can put on this, the best, is that this was a failed Orion-type interstellar probe propelled, propelled by thermonuclear charges. Okay, hang on a sec. We're, we're obviously – we're, we're up, we're up against – John, John, we're up against yeah. the top of the hour, so I'm going to hold you over. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, you're on the other side of midnight. We're, we're, we're undergoing an extraordinary kind of blow-by-blow – of what happened in back in 2014, which was years before Oumuamua showed up. Yes. You're on the other side of midnight. My first guest tonight, John Brandenburg. He will complete the story of why he thinks from Loeb's published materials assessment that what smacked into the Earth's atmosphere in excess of solar system escape velocity, meaning it came from beyond the solar system was in fact a manufactured recognizable thermonuclear device or weapon that miraculously when it hit the atmosphere didn't go off and it couldn't be from anybody here because it was moving faster than 30 miles per second you're on the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we return, John will complete the rest of the story.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, the 23rd of September, 2023. 23, wasn't it? Uh, who was the writer who thought 23 was a kind of a communication code to serious? I know someone's pricking up their ears at that. Anyway, so John has laid before us an extraordinary uh, hypothesis backed up by the Abbey Loeb data, which is that someone for Christmas sent us a thermonuclear weapon <clears throat> and for some reason it didn't explode and the only people that would know this would be those who could spend enough money to go and drag the bottom of the ocean floor off uh, uh, Indonesia and uh, uh, New Guinea and come up with samples that John can look at and say wait a minute nobody creates that unless John pick it up yeah, well, uh, for one thing, I'm certain that people in Abby Loeb's group know exactly what they were looking at. Well, don't but you think the DOD? Uh, hang on, hang on. Don't, 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 don't you think the DOD was funding him quietly so that he could be the point man to go and look and recover this stuff, given that he is out there? In other words, it's wheels within wheels within wheels. Nobody's Anyone, telling us the truth. Anyone who can look on Wikipedia and see the design of a thermonuclear weapon can figure this out. I mean, it just it's, you, you look at the design, you just look on Wikipedia, it's got a diagram of a nuclear weapon. It's full of beryllium, lithium, and uranium. And these are three very rare elements in nature, but you combine them together and they make a rare thing, a thermonuclear, let's just call it a device right now uh, you know it's a if you want to propel a spacecraft to near the speed of light for interstellar travel and do it in a fairly low te- you know some kind of technology that we could even do ourselves then you do a project Orion type uh, nuclear charge propelled uh, devi- uh, you know, vehicle and it's as if somebody had aimed this probe at the Earth from interstellar somewhere else, some other star system, and uh, it 
uh, fell in, it, it basically rendezvoused with the sun, the solar system, got into the same rest frame as the sun, and then fell inward towards the Earth. And it was supposed to fire braking charges, uh, which would have been nuclear uh, explosions, uh, to slow down and go into orbit around the Earth. But whoever ran it, let's let's put the best possible face on this. They decided just to let it burn up in the atmosphere instead uh, because they detected that uh, the human race was here. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me, given that we have a whole bunch of other signatures that somebody out there has been palling around here for a very long time, do you really think this was some naive, you know, uh, pre-war civilization using the best of their technology to send a ship between the stars, or was it a weapon sent deliberately to our DOD, fused so it would not explode, but if it was recovered, everybody knew it was a weapon because it was a challenge to the current political directions of what's going on on Earth. In other words, it's, it's, it's basically blackmail. Like if you keep going, oh, it's, uh, it's, we it's, could do even worse. Um. Oh, that's that is certainly a possible scenario. And by not I'm taking, letting it, I'm putting. I, you know, I call this a fig leaf interpretation. I'm putting a fig leaf over the. Uh, well, we can't really speculate about anything because we have no data other than it. I, I know. We just it, we it have is, a, a thing that was melted and then disintegrated in the atmosphere. After coming in at very high speed, it was very tough, by the way. The thing, the hull of this thing was made of very tough heat-resistant alloy, and that was full of aluminum and titanium. It was well, it obviously had some kind of heat shield, otherwise it wouldn't have survived at all, right? Well, yes, and it was the toughest thing they'd ever seen come in because it came in so fast and yet survived so long to, to low altitudes before melting and then breaking up into a bunch of a shower of droplets over the uh, Pacific Ocean. Yeah, it almost and, seems to me, John, like a gift. And we could speculate all night, and we don't have all night. I, I well, want, they, I'll bring in intelligence and the interaction of civilization. The possibilities become just myriad. You yeah. It'd be the astronomical number of possibilities. Okay, if you want to go to check out John's items for real – which means it's a written report. There are two items published under John's it's section. It's a preprint. Uh, it's been accepted as a scientific journal. Okay, so item number one is a PDF that John created on his hypothesis that this was a nuclear weapon that did not explode, but we know it from the signature of the materials, which are well, really... Well, I call it, a, I, as I said, it's a fig leaf, but I call it a device. Yeah, well, okay, okay. And item number two is an actual link to the paper which is being published even as we speak by a mainstream Indian scientific journal, right? Yes. They're on they're on a roll, Chandrayan. Oh no 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 they the the um, the the link I sent you was the earlier article about the Mars Holocaust. I haven't gotten the link for the Indian scientific. Oh article. okay 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 sorry. I'm I'm sorry. They 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 just haven't you know I. We've gotten everything all tied up with a ribbon on it, but they haven't sent me the link to the saying the article has been published. Here's the link to it. Well, let me let me let me close the the loop here then, because what differentiates our announcement tonight of 
ET machines and fragments in the matrix yes. of all these rocks, almost a thousand pounds of samples brought back by the astronauts sitting here on Earth tonight under a civilian space agency. There's no legal pretense once you know what's in that vault that they can keep it secret. What I well, want to you know do, what? hang, hang on, what? John, hang on, hang on. What I want to do is I want to marry um, Loeb's technology, his technique, which, yep. he, which he used to analyze the elemental composition of this bizarre interstellar object, yes. weapon, whatever, apply the same technology in a laboratory to different random samples from the Apollo cache. Remember, almost a thousand pounds, slice this rock, that rock, that rock over there, see what's inside, and then apply the same ion beam micro sampling technology, which is literally nanometers in scale, to turn up what the composition is in terms of elements, metals, plastics, whatever, of these apparent looking machines because that will tell us for pennies, pennies, what this stuff is made of if it's manufactured, and it might even give us some clues as to the nature of the devices themselves and their end use. It's all within grasp tonight if Abby Loeb, as part of his journey, will go from collecting materials under the Pacific Ocean to making a visit to Houston and applying the same technology to the 842 pounds of priceless samples returned to Earth because there's not just rocks in those samples. There's real, incredibly ancient ET technology. Oh, I think you're, you're, I think you, you're very, very much correct. I think that this is a very plausible interpretation of some of the fragments you see in your in these slices, and uh, we ought to be investigating that. There could be a million years worth of technology that was built, abandoned, wrecked by meteors, scattered all over the lunar surface, and just became part of the lunar regolith. And um, See what I hadn't. Well, John, John, one, spaceships to uh, you know abandon uh, abandoned domes. Yes, and, you know, yes, exactly. Scenario and because uh, uh, you know, well, the reason, by the way, Earth is in the center of a, a galactic void. We actually own Boardwalk and Park Place, <laughs> and this could account by why we seem to get so many tourists, reportedly. But right. anyway. Uh, I think we may have been discovered by some other less advanced species than the other ones. I don't, who knows? Who knows? Well, that's why I don't want to do a lot of speculating tonight because we don't have to. We can actually right. figure I'll this tell you, out. I'll tell you, tell you what UAP stands for, though. <laughs> means you are played. Mean you are played for a fool. Okay, that's that's one way of putting it. Absolutely. Hey, let me let me the name from UFO to, to UAP. Let me talk about another not, mission. Would not make a connections to the UFO cover up. Yeah, uh, John. Let me talk about another mission that kind of dovetails to what we're talking about tonight. Okay, very good. Because literally, it's Saturday night, it's the twenty third. Tomorrow, the twenty fourth. Tomorrow, 
the NASA OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, the return capsule, bringing, uh-huh. bringing about a pound, give or take, of samples from the asteroid Bennu, which looks yes. incredibly weird geometrically, is going to enter the skies of continental United States over uh, Utah, <clears throat> will come into the atmosphere, will land in the some Utah desert, will be picked up by a team ferried there by helicopter, will be then sent to the extension of the old lunar receiving laboratory in Houston, where the moon rocks were analyzed decades ago and are still being analyzed. And this new material, which is, as I said, about a pound of very finely divided stuff, looks yeah, like they little rocks. Up a bunch of stuff from the surface. Oh, a tremendous amount. And I'm going to bet dollars to Navy Beans that in among that one pound of stuff, there is the same kind of micro machinery that we found in the rocks the astronauts brought back I'll tell back you what I think they're going to find in there. It's CI carbonaceous chondrites, which are from Mars, by the way. Well, we will both see who's right. The point we'll is that that... see who's right. That, I that, see... I'll, that, I'll put I'll put a nickel on that on that on that wager. Okay, well I can probably do better than that. But anyway, the point is that tomorrow, sometime during the day, I'm not exactly sure whether it's morning or afternoon, but this uh, sample return from the Bennu asteroid, which has been a mission ongoing since 2022, when they picked up the samples of the asteroid, it'll be back on Earth. It will be analyzable by all the incredible array of extraordinarily sophisticated technology, which literally can look at the nanometer scale, things that are a billionth of a meter, which is about three feet, as the same kind of technology that Loeb used on his samples, this kind of technology should be applied both to the Bennu samples coming in tomorrow and the 840 pounds of moon rocks that have been on Earth for over half a century and believe me, if this is done properly and in public, the answer is going to be we are not alone. History takes a huge leap forward. Now, <laughs> if, if Loeb does not pick up the challenge, I'm, I'm going to be very intrigued with what his excuses for not taking a look turn out to be. Because if well, he doesn't do it, we can put together another team and under law – NASA will have to provide the samples for an accredited team looking with these state-of-the-art tools. They have some loophole. You know, there's there is no loophole. There is no loophole. No, there is not. They have a whole department in the government to to confiscate extraordinary evidence. It's all locked in a warehouse. Yeah, but that's then and this is now. You know, if you're living back then, yeah, we'll never make any progress. We're making all kinds of progress. It's just not linear. And I guarantee you it's not going to come from the UFO crazies. It's going to come from looking at artifacts NASA returned a half century ago. And what I don't understand, John, I mean, you've been part of the community for decades. How how if you're a, a, a geologist in uh, Kuala Lumpur, or in uh, South Korea, or in yeah. Japan, and you analyze this stuff and you find what you and I agree is there, and you don't report it, how do you get away with not announcing something so astonishing in a sample that came directly through the paper trail and the chain of custody from NASA? 
There's a great deal of herd thinking in science. I'm sorry to tell, I'm sorry to break it to you, Richard. Uh, I I asked a British guy. They found organic materials in a Mars meteorite, and I said, "Well, that was two years ago. Why haven't you found any more?" And he said, "We were afraid to find any more because we got such so much hostility when we announced our first findings." He said, and so. But hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Now NASA has officially set up a bureaucracy looking for extraterrestrial intelligence, either well, as either as vehicles, either as vehicles or as chemistry or as little machines in the rocks brought home from the moon. There's no way with this political backdrop that they can avoid the truth for much longer. Because I, we and, and this I, audience, and I agree with you, Richard. We are, we are, we're going to push like crazy. Things are changing. The whole thing is falling apart. We're going through the second Copernican revolution. You know, where we're going to wake up one morning and realize, oh my God, we're not the center of the biological universe after all. <laughs> and so it's, I, I, I do agree with you. I guess I'm. I, part of me is I'm a little bit cynical after my experiences, uh, you know, um, especially after, you know, well. And Do you want to talk you know, about. You organize your, uh, uh, the independent Mars investigation team, and I'm so glad that you asked me to be a part of that. It uh, changed my life for the better. And uh, Well, as Humphrey Bogart said in Casablanca, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> so there you go, Richard. No, no, it just you made the face on Mars as well known as the face of Washington and the dollar bill, and that's that was a big accomplishment. Well, that and, was just foreplay. This stuff, ah, this stuff you see on the screen, this oh, is where this is where the action is. And, and we have one protagonist, Abby Loeb. Hey, I want to bring some other members of our panel. Yeah, bring on Bob Morningstar. <laughs> well, I want to actually start with Andrew. Because oh, Andrew okay. Andrew Curry is, thank you John and Andrew Curry is is um, is is not a, a scientist he's an artist but he is recognizably proficient in seeing geometry and shapes oh Andrew very good what was your uh, first take when you looked at these micro photographs well if you zoom in okay if you zoom in really close there's a couple things I want to get off here off my chest. Um, there's symmetry and there is organization. And I say that not only by looking at it, but when I compared it to, um, you know, thin slices or, or whatever of, uh, of crystal, crystal stuff, the crystal is, yeah, sometimes it looks pe peculiar and strange, like things here on earth, but it's not to the degree of organization that the samples that you're putting out there, Richard are. And yeah, <sighs> Look, this is – if I really went in and, and spent the time to, to go into the details, I could pull stuff out. And I didn't have time today. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I promised you, Richard, and I couldn't. It's all right. But it, yeah, but there are you – know, we, we're seeing things like wires, John, like possibly even <laughs> wires in this stuff. I know. I've looked at the pictures, and uh, yeah, some of the stuff looks very much like broken up microtechnology. Yeah, and there's even um, one of our, our members here, Ron Gerbron, he said it reminded him of an episode, I think it was Stargate. Stargate, Stargate SG-1. Yeah, and Ro Richard, uh, Richard, yeah, Richard, do you want to explain what, what Ron saw? Well, why don't we bring on Ron, Ron Gerbron. Yeah. Are you with us, Ron? 
Is Ron with us? I think I see oh. him. I he is think, there. I think I see him, yeah. Ron, pick up. He's seen but not heard. Oh, too bad. Okay, I'm on, I'm on muting. You know how I am with phone. All right, I'm you've muted. been muted. <laughs> uh, so, Ron, yes. speak up. Okay, the most recent uh, and evil, uh, well, not evil, uh, foe that the Stargate crew faced was a bunch of self-replicating um, nanobots. Sure. Well, they called they called them replicants. Uh-huh. And that and that thing that is so prominent in uh Richard's prime sample there the first time I looked at it I said this looks like a replicator tile. Are we taking looking at 7 or 6? Uh I can't look at the screen right now. I think so it's I, probably 7. Yeah. The one that has the wires and the cross hatching and all that. Yeah, that was the first thing you sent me. The picture number one you sent me. This is John. Yeah, 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 and that that is quite impressive. Well, but see, I only had time to look at two or three samples out of literally thousands of rocks that NASA has thin sectioned over the years and posted their images all over the NASA headquarters, uh, various Apollo mission websites. So between now and the next time we do a show like this, I will find more. I'll do comparisons showing what ordinary uh, thin sections of rocks on Earth, crystals, crystalline rocks look like. I mean, there's basically just three types of rocks. There's igneous, which is melted. There is uh, sedimentary rocks, which form on Earth under underwater. And then there's conglomerates, which are bigger chunks of rock formed underwater. But on the moon, you've got what are called these brushes, where every impact, because of the shock and the thermal stress of something coming in at hypervelocity, creates a crater, creates all kinds of debris, wells debris from totally disparate sources together <clears throat> as kind of like synthetic rocks. And that was the majority of the material the astronauts brought home. And as John said over and over again, if you've got a technology covering a large part of the moon, and you got a few million years to play with, by the time you get the brushy, as we now know, you're looking at them on the screen, there could be bits and pieces of technology from anywhere on the moon. From 15 different species. Exactly. And from a billion years of time. I mean, this is such a breakthrough. I, words almost, English almost fails me to properly context tonight what this show represents well, and, see, why, see, and, why Ab, and why Abby Loeb, let me finish, would be dumb not to take the lead on this, given that we're offering it to him, to follow up on his splendid work in the South Pacific and simply bring in the revolution in a way that is absolutely quintessentially scientific through and through. No need to speculate at all. Well, and I'll mention to you that this stuff would not survive on Earth because of all the water. Oh, it'd be oxidized totally to nothing. You know, there's so much geologic activity in water, especially inundation by water and erosion and stuff. You you wouldn't have this stuff on if if there was anything like this that fell into the Earth's environment from space, it would be gone in a thousand years. On the moon, though, everything is preserved. Yep. And and remember we've got we've got we've got pieces coming back to Earth tonight from Bennu 
And I guarantee you there could be one or two of those weird things in that sample. A pound is stunning. The the, the Japanese, you you realize, also did a asteroid uh, return. So they have some asteroid material. And their asteroid actually crossed the orbit of Mars, too. It spent a lot of time Hmm. out by Mars. So it was coated with uh, carbonaceous chondrites, which was a big surprise to them. Okay, we've got a lot of people on the panel tonight. So let's bring on Robert Morningstar. And by the way, everybody's bios are available where it says under... Under the promo tonight, uh, fast links to bios. John's is there, Ron's, Andrew's, Ruggiero's, Keith, David, uh, Robert, Laura, and Barbara. Um, so let's bring on on. Uh, actually, let me do this. Richard, Richard, yeah, can I interject ahead. just for? Yeah. I really want to ask John a question. I know we're five minutes to the end of the half hour, and I know John. Ask away. Yeah, John, listen, we did a little study, or I did a little study on a lot of the staff for NASA. Uh, um, in regards to their Curiosity mission, um, you know, basically the Mars rover missions that were going on. And these young people, a lot of them are young. There's there's a mixture of ages. But a lot of the younger ones, the ones sort of in their 20s, 30s, go on and on in their bios about, wow, you know, I grew up on Star Trek and this and that. And, and, you know, when I'm really outgoing, I travel. And then they're just clicking a picture and not seeing anything. Well, they Why? recruit they they recruit people who have like to drive rovers who have been driv- driving in L.A. for five years. If they see a burning car next to the freeway with a gr- person in a gorilla suit waving for help, they just keep driving. And that's that's the kind of pipe people they hire to uh, you know drive the rovers on Mars and to look at the data. And these people, by the way, I was a young graduate student at one point. I was told the world is flat and to stay away from the edges, basically. And I said, yes, sir, please sign my PhD thesis. So, I can get up. <laughs> so you're basically saying it's groupthink. I think it's a little more pernicious. I'm practically... Oh, it's, it's, it's more pernicious than just groupthink. Well, it's I think it's mind control. Thing. I think it's mind control. I think it's a, a technology alive and well and used very sparingly, but in critical key situations like a whole bunch of you know, Star Trek grad students at JPL saying, oh, my God, look at that machine. Look at that, you know, whatever. None of right. them are doing what would be expected. None. No, and they know they know better than to do it. They yeah, but if a, whole bunch of them, if a whole bunch of them decided to hold a press conference, there's not a damn thing that anybody could do. Not a well, damn they thing. Could fire, <laughs> they could fire all of them. So, John, last last thing, and I know we're getting close I'm to that. Sorry, yes, yes. And, and I don't want to take up Robert's time when, he, when we come back. But we just talked about NASA coming back from Bennu. You just spoke about the Japanese mission that's bringing scrapings of we know what that – that's not an asteroid. We know that geometric thing is a thing, <laughs> a space platform or a spaceship or you know, it's just a derelict. Sure. What is it going to take for the straw to break – the camel's back like what is it going to take when i mean how much evidence is someone going to leak this uh richard well, well, right? andrew remember john is very cynical i'm much more oh, okay. you know uh, bullish i'm not cynical i'm just i'm just a little jaded that's all but what would it take if we have just insurmountable evidence i mean you can't look past this stuff forever or can we well in in my novel about the collapse of the ufo cover-up some ranchers finally bring down a flying saucer trying to take one of their cows for mutilation. 
and the government sends troops to try and recover it, and they run into a bunch of trigger-happy cowboys, and the cowboys win the gun battle, and the UFO cover-up then has only hours to live uh-huh. after that. That's what happens in my novel. Tell them the name of the novel. Morning Star Pass, The Collapse of the UFO Cover-Up. It's not, it's, by coincidence, it's, it sounds like Robert Morningstar inspired it. Actually, it was, uh, it was a little town in uh, Virginia called Morningstar that I stumbled across. Yeah. So, but anyway, it's a great name. What's that? that? I'll never forget that's how we met when I came out from undercover in the UFO. Okay, guys, we are, we are, we are at the bottom of the hour. Okay. My guests this morning are John Brandenburg. And a cast to numerous dimension. They're all listed on the website. You can find their bios. We're going to get right back to our conversation right after this small message from the other side of midnight. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, the 23rd of September of 2023. we got John Brandenburg with us, who thinks that my protocol for uh, inveigling Abby Loeb into this uh, this briar patch is uh, well yes, thought he's, out. he's my hero. <laughs> well, we'll see if he actually rises to the bait, because there is... Oh, he already, ha- he there, already has. Yeah, but all he has to do is look at the damn moon rocks. Because there's not just chemistry and isotopes, there's machines. So you don't think he's going to take up the challenge? I, oh no, no, he may very well, he may very well do it. He may very well agree with you. I think your suggestion is eminently reasonable. Thank you. Okay, Robert, Robert Morningstar, who was our civilian intelligence analyst, which very good, seems very good, to be, you know, kind of a contradiction Thank in you, terms. You, Robert, your thoughts. Given that you're, um, I mean, you're you're, you're really responsible for tonight. You know that, right? Yes, I, I know. I could have named the novel after you, Robert. I didn't, but I, I could. Mean, have. Was, I, <laughs> I was I was so surprised when you wrote to me and uh, told me the name. And, and Victor Norgard is the name. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> a, a wonderful. You know what? That book. I uh, I asked experts about it, and Dr. Bruce Maccabee said that it was the most accurate book 
about UFO and the background of UFOs that anybody had ever written. And that's Dr. Oh my Bruce God. Right. Yeah. Said that. Well, he, he actually sent me a private message saying that he really liked the novel and that it was really useful. Yeah, he was more glowing in, in uh, his response to me. And he said that you had had access to real files, but that you had had to write it as a science novel. fiction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And speaking of science fiction, I'm so happy that you mentioned one of my favorite movies, The Mysterians. The Mysterians. There you go. I, I, I aired uh, Andrew and I get together. We have a midnight movie club. And about two years ago, I said, you've got to see The Mysterians. That revealed so much. Alien abductions, the taking of oh, women, burying robots, Japanese women <laughs> into these yeah, exactly burying robots, earthquake-producing uh, <laughs> technologies. It was it's a classic. Tojo um, oh, recommends anyone. And, yeah. and bases on the moon, bases and on bases, the moon. exactly mm-hmm. bases on the far side of the moon. So well, I didn't have in there was animal mutilations. Right. Right. Well, you covered that with the thing and James Arness. Uh, James Arness. <laughs> yeah. I know. So okay, Robert, Robert, good. Robert, Robert, we don't have a lot of time. It's amazing how three hours goes. What okay. are your thoughts of the thin sections and the machines? The thin sections show uh, nanotechnology. And remember, I, I looked at that uh, black and white. And when I said to you, what the hell is that? <laughs> and I said, it looks like the inside of Andrew's desk, because I imagine uh, protractors and straight edges and slide rules and all kinds of. You know, what's uh, so weird is when I looked at it again, because again, my my one of my cliches, you know, what you can't imagine, you can't see. I never imagined that this stuff would survive pounding and pounding and pounding. And then I did a little calculation and I realized that most of the redistribution of the regolith, which is the lunar soil filled with the rocks and the junk is far enough away so that the shock waves penetrate, but the temperatures, the high temperatures that vaporize things are really restricted. So basically what meteors do when they impact the moon is they redistribute the rubble over and over and over and and they smash it smaller and smaller. So if I had my head on, I would have thought decades ago, oh my God, we need to look at the rocks. They come back to that. I have a surprise for you. The reason I uh, recognize that stuff is that I held breccia and northrosite, any northrosite, different uh, samples of moon rocks, and I studied them under the microscope. And it's just a coincidence. Last, last night, Ron asked me why all the samples that the U.S. government gave to other countries turned out to be fake. And I said, because I believe there are fossils embedded in some of them. Yes! And and the yeah, Russians, the Russians. Remember the Lunacots? Remember the Russians with the Lunacot series, the unmanned rovers that yes. they got to the moon, bathtub mm-hmm. size, you know, with lids and solar panels. They had drilling equipment. They were able to collect and 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 send back to Earth unmanned samples. And really there are quite there, a remarkable achievement. There are all automatic back in the day of tubes, practically. And and they were able to analyze them, and they published papers showing Mm -hmm. fossils and biology in their samples, and none of our guys ever even responded. That's why I said to Ron, there are fossils embedded in uh, in the samples. Now, during this this conversation, as I wanted to show you some of the samples of the breccia that I had studied, I came across a breccia 
that has microchips embedded in it. It's the last picture that I sent you. And you can see the grid pattern in the broken microchips. It's the one that's a kind of green sample with blue chips in it, and they are rather large. And you can see exquisite grid patterns, uh, parallels. You mean like printed circuits? Yeah, printed circuits, yeah. exactly so. Yeah. Okay. It's amazing. Well, form, form follows yeah. function. If yeah. an AT John, I'm going to send you an even uh, better picture of it tomorrow so that you can oh, start Oh, very it. good, very good. Okay, what yeah. we're going to do for everybody who is not seeing samples from from uh, Robert or from anybody else, because Ron's not connected, his data, neither is Andrew, we're rerunning this show tonight, tomorrow night, because it's so damn important. And the only way you get through the noise curtain these days is to be a signal, a redundant, redundant, redundant signal. So we're replaying this show tomorrow night for everybody out there. If they want to save, you know, pennies and not subscribe to Club 19.5, tell your friends, your family, the people who have been skeptical of what you've been interested in, tell them to listen free tomorrow night to the other side of midnight. We'll go through this whole thing for them. And it's something they need to know because I believe, John, your, your nuke was a warning. Someone wants us to stay in prison, and they're not happy with where we're going, the direction of disclosure, the direction of making these weird, you know, things that go bump in the night, part of mainstream culture, both at the DOD and at NASA with formal offices. And frankly, I think they followed up what was very subtle in 2014 with what they did to Maui. Because Maui was an attack by enemies, not from Earth, I would bet dollars to Navy beans, because the technology is nothing that is loose well, on planet Earth. Certainly, certainly a horrendous disaster. And I there's think it no, explanation. no explanation for it. I'd what? like to say something about Emuamua. Okay, and then I I'll say something. I read about Emuamua 27 years ago when I picked up a book by Gurdjieff. It's called Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. Mm. In that novel, he describes Emuamua to a T. It's called the Space of Karnak. And he gives a very unusual uh, account of the evolution of human beings uh, by uh, extraterrestrial engineering. He says, uh, I'll read you this short sentence which describes it. It says that there were two satellites which broke off a planet during its early phase after it was hit by a comet, and they took orbits uh, around the Earth. One was the moon, and the second body, unknown to mankind, is called Anulios. But listen to this. In order to maintain cosmic stability, it was necessary that both bodies remain in Earth's orbit. To ensure this stability, men were required to emit a certain substance an artificial organ was implanted into all human beings by the high powers, making them oblivious of this mechanism, but causing psychological side effects such as vanity, pride, and other vices. <laughs> they caused to grow in the three brain beings there in a special way at the base of their spinal column, at the root of their tail, which they also at that time still had, and which part of their common presences, furthermore, still had its normal exterior expressing the, so to this day, fullness of the inner significance. Gurdjieff was one of the most brilliant men of the 
of 20th century. Uh, when, was high this of when was this written, Bob? This was written, he dictated it between 1927 and 1929. Ah, and many, many years ago, I read uh, an account of Hitler saying that he had met the Superman, that yes, he had seen yeah, his presence and trembled in his presence. And I said, my God, what is this guy? And about five years ago, I found out that he was talking about Gurdjieff. That's, uh, that's rather significant. And Gurdjieff had this uh, high cosmic knowledge. Well, remember, has... Hitler and company were looking to Tibet as the last vestige of the ancient pre-catastrophe civilization that they could mine and use to own the world. Yeah, the Atlantean route race. I wanted to ask John, what tipped off Abbey Loeb to go and look in that region of the Pacific Ocean for oh, what he found? The, the, the... The Defense Department uh, released, you know, uh, images of the thing burning up, and they had basically, you, you, they just looked for where the track ended. Was this within the last three years? It was 2014 when 2014. the taxes came in. 2014. But they did okay, not make it. Strong? But they didn't make it public until after Loeb had made a big deal about Oumuamua. Because I was wondering if it possibly had some connection to the Tonga explosion, which you explored. No, on the no, no, much, much too, much too early, much too early. Yeah. So anyway, uh, but Tonga, I think, was another warning. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Well, the geometry, uh, the energies, Tonga, everything that was about the big it. Undersea volcano that erupted like a yes. weapon. Yeah, that one. That was pretty interesting watching that shockwave move. That was well. Uh, look at the geometry. You know, I didn't post it tonight because we've done it right, many it other shows. Like yeah. All right, we got a whole bunch of other people. I want to get a yeah, non. Yeah, yeah. I want to get a non-technical person reaction here. Laura, that's you. Laura's background is in the social sciences. She has a brilliant podcast called Speaking of Jung. Uh, I did an interview with her some years ago. Apparently, it's uh, you know one of the most downloaded, which I find interesting. Uh, and it turns out that Jung before he decided to become the world's premier uh, psychiatrist, uh, was interested deeply in ancient archaeology. Laura? Uh, Laura? Hi. Hi. Yeah, I, I'm just sitting here listening. I don't have anything intelligent to add to this conversation. I'm blown away. This is all far and above and beyond me, and I'm just trying to make sense of everything, but I appreciate hearing all of it and well, wait, wait, wait. when you say it's yeah. above and beyond you i don't believe that for a nanosecond okay so what are some <laughs> of the things that we've talked about that you may not quite understand well i was looking at radio with pictures looking for some of the images and i'm not seeing everything am i yes you are yeah that, i am okay that, that number 10 is a dangling participle okay <laughs> okay well I'm also interested in what's going on with Bennu crashing back to Earth, pieces of Bennu tomorrow. So that coverage starts at 10 o'clock. Uh, yeah, I, you're definitely on to something. I did post on Twitter or X. Um, Avi Loeb does not have a personal Twitter account, but the Galileo Project does. So I told him you guys were talking about him tonight, issuing him a challenge. Um so that's out there. Well, I have tried for, what, six years, seven years? I started this, what, back in 2014 with the Pluto flyby? I've been at this a long time. He has never responded to me 
we had one brief conversation. He said it was too late at night, you know, yeah. 10 o'clock here. He's, he's back east. He's Boston, Cambridge. Uh, I thought to myself, well, if you're trying to change the world and introduce ET artifacts, the least you could do would be to take a nap. And, of course, he's been on George. He's been on Clyde. He's been everywhere. He will not come on the show. So I have a feeling it has to do with Lua, but I can't be certain. But I do have contacts, you know, one hops, as we used to call them, people I can talk to and they can talk directly to him. By hook or by crook, and with the help of this audience, we're going to get Loeb to take the appropriate position and test the hypothesis, given that so far, every single member of the panel who's been on says they see the artifacts, they see the micro machines, they see the geometry, and I didn't handpick you. I just, you know, we've got people who frankly don't see it. And we have one of those with us tonight, I think. Um, do you want to come on and sign in? Uh, you got to give my name. Oh, well, I didn't want to put you in a rough spot. Barbara <laughs> does not, at least as of yesterday, did not see what we're talking about. Has anything changed? Barbara Honiger. Well, um First off, don't put words in my mouth, please. Um, but I am impressed with number seven. And I believe that's the first photograph that you sent to John Brandenburg. Mm-hmm. That, that, is, that is very interesting. Um, my first thought was, why couldn't all of these thousands of thin slices of these uh these are moon rocks, correct? These are moon rock brushes. Yeah. yeah. Why, why couldn't artificial intelligence be applied to, even though they're thin, thin slices, uh, for looking for patterns across these Well, things? of course they can. And that's why what Nelson said at the pre-press conference one hour on Thursday about the study and the setting up of the UAP office and all that, he said AI and ML – and I had to look up ML, it's machine learning. In other words, they're dependent overwhelmingly on looking at what we already know is out there with AI because AI is the new God. Notice that Barbara does not trust humans, but she will trust a computer to tell her that something is artificial. That's how far we have come. No, that, that's not fair to me, Richard. Oh, I'm, to say I don't trust <laughs> I am. I'm being a little facetious, dear. Come on, we know each other You're long enough. You're being very facetious. Okay. <laughs> uh, but but anyway, um, I am impressed with number seven. There's something extremely unusual about that. That that multi, it looks like a multifaceted jewel. It definitely yeah. does not look natural. With wires, which are three dimensional, they're 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 cylindrical. And one of them. Well, I don't know about wires, but well, look, but, look. See, you need to understand what light does when it hits geometry, and that's where most of our educations were woefully deficient. You know, some of us have been doing a lot of you know post whatever work, but most people look at these things and they have no basis for even understanding what they're looking at, let alone its three dimensional nature. Well, that's my point. Um, it seems to me that maybe AI, and I don't think we have to wait for somebody else. It seems to me that there should be uh, some kind of AI program that you yourself 
uh, could probably get online and apply to, for instance, number seven, to try to pull out of this thin slice, um, what are the possible three-dimensional geometric uh, formation. Okay. Form. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because let me, yeah. let me give you a little more background of how I intend to approach the analysis. <clears throat> Every time you do a thin section of a rock, a thin slice, the rock is, is deficient by one slice of itself, right? Mm-hmm. If you do enough slices, you literally section the entire rock into a huge collection of thin sections, right? Right which are like cross sections of a three-dimensional something buried in the rock in the matrix. That's exactly my point. I think so, we should be able to reconstruct so if the you, three-dimensional exactly. object. Now, is NASA willing to sacrifice a rock or two and thin section the entire thing to build up a three-dimensional image? It doesn't have to because you can do the same thing now with x-rays, with x-ray fluorescence, with you know, um, beam analyzers. In other words, you uh, basically thin sectioning is the inverse of what we call 3D printing, which is made up in a machine of a matrix, putting coatings down, letting them set, putting another coating down, et cetera, et cetera, right? So this is just the yeah. reverse. And whatever a computer can create in a, in a 3D, you know, machine, then the same kind of AI intelligence could deconstruct from taking thin sections that don't even involve physically attacking the rock. You could do this with high energy X-ray beams or, or, or you know, uh, gamma rays, maybe. In other words, you would get an idea and you'd be able to rotate it in 3D on a screen what the hidden matrix of the rock is concealing in the way of inclusions full three-dimensional inclusions, which might in fact be a much bigger machine that would be the size of the rock, which is like a foot right. or so. No, I, I understand. Computer tomography. tomography. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I understand. Yeah, exactly. I have, a, I have hmm. a comment and a question, um, and then I'll, you can turn it over to somebody else. Um, my comment is I, I just wanted to remind you, um, you opened, you were close to opening the show tonight. Um, by by mentioning this very strange experience um, with the guy with the duster at NASA. <laughs> and I don't think you said who this guy was. I don't remember his name. It's been so well, many... What category was he? He was, he was supposed to be a news person that was being squired around to other news people, because that was uh, what we call our press credentials. You, you signed in like, you know, the, 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 the Stansville shopper. Back in yeah. those days, NASA was so eager to have it, what it was doing covered, it accredited everybody who had a pretense of a news credential. So, so I don't. So rem- what category was he? Was he mainstream media? No, 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 no. He was this Western-looking dude with a with a port. He had he had like a literal canvas bag, and he would pull out these press releases and hand oh. them to everybody that introduced him to personally. So he well, Bristol came, must have known what was in the press release. Of course he did. Yeah. It was part of NASA's planting the meme. So when we get to tonight, people will say, oh, we never went to the moon. I mean, Kinthea had a show oh, with, yes. with uh, a couple of weeks ago with Bart Seibrill, who claims to this day that we never went to the moon. 
Well, the right. Russians brought back samples, and we compared their samples and our samples. We said, we'll show you ours if you show you yours. And the Russians knew we went to the moon because they monitored all our transmissions. <laughs> yes. Well, I have, I have one other – hold Go on. Ahead. I have one Go other ahead, I just want to make a footnote here that last night we had a show with Morningstar and Robert Chabron and also some – Information from a friend for the counter. Oh, ho, ho. I'm not the Robert. I'm the Ron. Yeah. I no. said Ron and Robert as yeah. a counter. There you go. The previous show. So we were doing bookends, both sides of the topic. Back to you, Absolutely. Barbara. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I, do, I just wanted to make one other comment, and that is um, also close to the beginning of tonight's show. You mentioned, um, you mentioned uh, of course, Apollo 11. Uh, which was in conjunction with this guy with a duster passing out these uh, these strange press releases. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to remind everybody on previous shows, um, I've done at least two of the other side of midnight shows on uh, the interview that I did uh, with uh, with the with the uh, Navy officer who was the Navy's weatherman at Pearl Harbor. Uh, at the time of Apollo 11, and um, and as you know, uh, he literally saved the Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Armstrong and the other two from certain death upon splashdown by checking the weather over the pre-programmed splashdown site, and they determined he determined using the Corona satellite <laughs> that. You know, they the Corona satellite was turned towards the moon, right? Um, he they used the Corona satellite photography uh, to determine that over the pre-programmed splashdown location, there was what was called a vertical 250 mile an hour vertical uh, whirlwind called a screaming eagle formation that would have completely sh- torn apart their parachutes and they would have died upon splashdown and so um he was able to change to get the location changed because synchronistically uh he still was cleared for the corona satellite program and he got the uh splashdown location changed a little bit further to the east uh and uh this this information uh, finally was able to be published 30 years afterwards. It had been classified for 30 years. And he came into my office at the Naval Postgraduate School um, shouting out, I need a journalist. And I, he was ushered into my <laughs> office. I was a senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School here in Monterey. And I got the story. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to, to send to Keith um, the uh, the article that was published in a DOD publication that I wrote based upon that, um, and his name was was Navy Captain Sam Houston, directly uh, this direct descendant of the Sam Houston. In the <laughs> well, good. Wow. Good. Yeah. Uh, Richard, uh, Barbara, Robert, anybody that'll listen. Uh, there's a uh, detail about the uh, Avi Loeb's evidence that uh, I haven't heard anybody consider. Well, John's the perfect person. Go for it. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, one of the things we can do in a lab, metal samples, is determine if it's something like uranium. They actually have that catalog. They know where every place on Earth is, every single mine that sure. produces it. And so they could run those tests on if there's uranium in there and see if it was terrestrially uh, originated. Oh, oh. And very good, very good. They can do the same thing with the lithium too. Yeah, there you I go. Think that's, I think that's very important because the, my very first take on that uh, was that this could be a cover story, that uh, that this is perhaps an Israeli um, nuclear-powered object, oh, uh, and on. that it's a really good cover story. I'd like to say something about item number seven from Richard. Okay. My first impression immediately when I saw that uh, large object in the upper left-hand corner, which you say had the wire, mm -hmm. I said to myself, that looks like a piece of crystal memory. And so... Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. Microchip, a microchip in, in the, the recent Breccia, the last piece I sent you, and I think that that is... Uh, crystal memory, and so you may be finding pieces of a gigantic computer or a microcomputer that was uh, obliterated and compacted in that breccia sample. That's all. Mm. That's that's a very interesting idea. Okay, we've literally got about a minute till the break. Does anybody have something you want to leave as a cliffhanger for the next uh, segment? Sure. The, wait, you keep talking about wires, and you know I'm on board with this. I said, hey, that looks like a replicator chip. But the uh, you do find crystals with uh, intrusions that look like fibers and or wires. I've got some sitting not too far from me on my shelf here right now. So that they might not be wires. The rest of it I'm uh, fine with. Sure. Well, if they're not – remember, a, an ion beam microprobe literally – uh, thermalizes a sample like this on a microscope stand or in a vacuum and reads off at the atomic level the composition of everything that you point the beam at and makes a recording, spectrographic. And then you can do chromatography. You can do um, all kinds of physical analysis. So if we're looking at crystals, it will show up in the analysis. If we're looking at machines, that will show up and Loeb is perfectly positioned because every sample, every 842 pounds NASA brought back is by definition not, you know, under some kind of national security, whatever. It's public domain, and it needs to be publicly analyzed. Okay, we are at the... One, one way you could pitch this to him, by the way, is say, look for evidence of extraterrestrial an extra solar materials on the moon because they can tell by the isotopes. Yeah, they can of course. Tell that of course. The iron isotopes <clears throat> in the sample they got were not from this solar system. Well, that's been part of the discussion we're going to have when we come back from the break. My guest this morning, John Brandenburg, and the uh, entire Enterprise Mission team has practically showed up here, which is very good. Um, we will continue this discussion. I will give out phone numbers if you want to join us by phone and through blog talk and you want to ask a, a pissy question to myself or any of the panelists you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland we shall return
the other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode. Two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And we're having a small circuit problem there. Let me do this. There we are. Live radio, folks, backstage. Okay, uh, Richard, I'm going to have to, I, I, I can give you about another 15 minutes and then I'm going to have to, I'm fading. <laughs> okay. Well, you've well, done more than yeoman, you've done more than yeoman service because you brought a pedigreed PhD to the conversation who looks at what I've been presenting and says, they're yeah, artifacts. A, a very reasonable interpretation to me, given the scenarios that one can easily imagine have occurred on the moon. Hmm. Uh, Ruggiero just sent me a note. Is is Ruggiero on the line? Is he on on with the rest of the panel? Good morning. Can you hear me? Yeah, a little. Speak up a little louder. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. I'm. I'm yes. Good. Yes. Hello, everyone. Hello, John. Okay. You are saying you cannot see the wire, right? I cannot see the wire, Richard. Okay. Unless let it's me, at the bottom. Let me door. show you exactly where it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're looking at number seven, right? Yeah. You've clicked on number seven, and it's big now on your screen. Yeah, it's big. You see the big. bottom left-hand part of the artifact, the the highly geometric kind of uh, uh, tannish green. Yeah. Okay. The, the, look the at the of... look at the little white oval just to mm-hmm. the bottom left of it, with something draped bit. across it. Yeah, the bit that's bisected it through the middle. Yep, kind of thing. yep. Okay, that little thing bisecting that little oval, that mm. is one of the wires. It's three-dimensional. You can see the shadow. It's a cylinder. And then at the very bottom, it's trailed off as a little thread that disappears at the edge of the white oval. Oh, yeah. Now, the white ovals are caused by the saw slicing through this thin section. And diamond mm. saws create heat. So in the process of sawing this little thin section off the, the, the moon rock, the mm. heat melted the wire and caused that little driblet right to the edge of the white oval. That's okay. the melted wire. I see it. And it goes up, and then it branches, and it crosses, and there's another cylinder going down, and one at right angles. And, yeah, this is a three-dimensional. I think Robert may have nailed it. It looks like mm. some kind of microchip. Yeah, when when we spoke like last week when I first saw these images, um, I said to you it looks like um, a lead stained glass window. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah it does. 
and the way and the way you put together a stained glass window is the the craftsmen use lead because it's low melting point and if they have to replace Mm. a pane it's not a pain to replace the pane see what i mean (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) and um Oh, I lost my friend. I'm, I'm very but look at the rest of the image. The more you look, yeah, the more you're going to see. It's incredible. I didn't even know that was a was sliced across. I thought that was just the face of, of the. No, no. This uh, is the, the see. If, if if we did enough thin slices, as Barbara said, we mm. could reconstruct the whole thing because we're just looking. Think of it mm. as a, as a well. It's the inverse of the 3D printing, but it's also mm. what you do in. In MRI machines with, I think, yeah, onset of MRI scans. Yeah, uh, or, or, you know, a three dimensional tomography is a technical name. All of these tools on Earth, we got a thousand pounds. All we need is some guy to, to run mm. point. And in, if, if yeah. you know, until Loeb says, I'm not the guy, I'm going to let him run with this because he's got everything in place. He's got the technicians, he's got the technology. He's got the microscopes, the electron microscopes. He's got everything. All he needs is a arm guard to bring him some samples from Houston to whatever lab he's using. And they stand there as he runs the experiments and then takes them back to Houston. And I guarantee you the world changes if that's done. Is that writing inside that uh, opening on that parallel lines that are inside that uh, opening? Are you talking number seven? Yeah, the, yeah, I'm, the, I'm. They might like be. Writing. Yeah, it, it might it, be. It characters. might. It might. Wouldn't that be astonishing? Richard, I want to bring up a, a piece. I want to go to. No, Keith has a really good point five, here because I hadn't really firstly. looked carefully, but that does look at. Oh, it, okay. it almost could be writing. Go ahead, go ahead, Ruggiero. Um, did you get the email? You did get the email because you replied. When I sent you over that fascinating um, Spanish podcast YouTube video, I'd go to the screenshot. Go ahead. Um, and um, you mean you mean from the Chandrayaan uh, control room? Well, firstly, the we'll backtrack a bit. The screenshot I sent you of NASA's wonderful uh, podcast in Spanish shows a. Bizarre, doesn't name, it's not named the planet. There's um, mysteries of the solar system, let's call it that. But it's got this very bizarre moonscape with a few plants on it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Satellite dish. Yeah, I, I remember the, the, the graphic. It was the colors are like what we see on the moon. By the exactly. way, did, did, did anybody happen to notice our, um, our, our uh, banner for tonight? If you go to the top of the guest page or you go to the mm. main page, it's sitting there. This is an Apollo. 17 image of something called Tracy's Rock because Gene Cernan when he was when he was investigating it that's him on the left uh, the astronaut next to the rock and the mm-hmm. rover is on the right first of all notice the color yeah don't you find the color bizarre I do find the is not the moon supposed that, to be gray is that a real picture this is of course it's a real picture no, I mean, you know, All I've done is increase the saturation to bring right, out what okay. they've been hiding for 50 that's years. The moon is a stunningly brilliant, you know, prism dappled place <laughs> with all kinds of extraordinary artistic, hint, hint, Cynthia, colors. Yeah. Colors so that me. have no business being there. Unless... Me, Richard, uh, Go ahead. Uh, I, uh, yeah, that's all. 
I've Wait a minute. You're, you're breaking up. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I mean, I'm modified. So if I go to number five, okay, and we go back to the colours on that picture, which I know Keith's going to, to add uh, later because no one would have seen um, the image unless they've been on the NASA website. So. To your point, number five brings in all those stunning colours that we've been seeing on the Chandrayaan mission, mm-hmm. and that image that you just posted on on, on the title screen—they're all in there on number five. And, yeah. Um, th- we're seeing those reflections back on Chandrayaan, which they showed on that first video, which was on the Economic Times mm-hmm. from the previous shows, which shouldn't have been there, and on the Chandrayaan flyby of the moon when they're coming down ready to land you're seeing all these lovely you know reflective prismatic colors coming through and there they are on your little sample and um number eight i don't even know what to make a manga movie and um you know i think i'll I'll, I'll open the floor back to the team i think these rocks are outstanding and interesting and i'd love to hear everybody's further comments okay so who else have we have we called up yet? Well, I will jump oh, in. Oh, there you are. There you are. The colors are, the colors are amazing, of course. <laughs> Any artist would love to paint these. And um, I guess each color is reflecting a different kind of material that it's made of. Well, and not the, exactly, because when you do thin sections, which have to be literally you know, hundredths of a of a millimeter in thickness, otherwise the rock is, is opaque. If you use polarized light, the light will refract through certain crystals with certain colors and other crystals with different colors. So it's not really a pigment. It's more the fundamental interaction of light and the mineral thickness and the way light waves bounce around and interfere with each other. It's more like the colors you see on a soap bubble than it is in terms of pigment. Why are the colors between eight and the others so different? Because it's different samples. Different materials, different rocks. So it's not the lighting that's being applied to it. No, 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 no. To do thin sectioning and to get petrology analysis, you basically keep everything else constant, thickness of your sample, light sources, polarization, all that, because the difference will show you different minerals reflecting or interacting with light different ways. Yeah, number eight is a totally different rock. Again, only from Apollo 16, it's like I've got this huge candy store and I've had no time to go through the shelves. <laughs> you know how that feels. Oh, I do. <laughs> so yeah, I take, take a look. You know, number seven. Say again? I said I have one more observation about number seven. Okay. So we're looking at the um, what I call the crystal memory. If you go directly to the right, one below you see a brown circle. But if you go directly to the right, as I look into that, it looks to me like a section through a rusty bolt. Exactly, it's a nut and bolt. Bingo, bolt, Robert. Right? Bingo. Right. Yeah. Right. Fascinating stuff. For, well, bolt. again, none of this should be here. All those white things. Those are three-dimensional objects sliced by the diamond saw. So you're looking at the tops of them, and you can actually see, because the angle is not exactly uh, 90 degrees, they have three-dimensional character, like the one on the far right. That looks like a big wire. 
look at the look at the upper left hand portion about the ten o'clock position, and it's like a cross section and it's overexposed because of course the the, the light value in this crystal is or this the sample is w way higher than you can represent on one screen. But if you look carefully at all of these, and again, I picked them totally at random. It's like the first three I found, and it was like, what are the odds that I'm going to pick three random cross-sections of lunar rocks and find damn artifacts in all three? Yes. That tells I'd me also we, like to crystal. point out. Go ahead. I'd also, I'd also like to point out where you see the ones that look like perfect circles. Yeah. Those, I believe, are where you've sliced through a wire. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's why they're perfect circles. Mm -hmm. Now, once again, in the crystal, uh, crystal memory, as I'll call it, if you look into each of the panes, it looks like there are three-dimensional uh, printed circuits and objects within each pane, especially the top one, which almost seems to have a pentagram in it, with parallel lines cutting across the apex of a of a scalene triangle. Are we talking so, number six? No, number still number seven. Fascinating, number seven. Okay. In the uppermost pane, uh, it looks like a scalene triangle with parallel lines cutting through it, almost making a star. Yep, yep. And the lower left uh, section looks like it has another crystal embedded within the crystal. Fascinating. It's fantastic thinking. So if like this audio mom... modulation... Say again? It kind of looks like audio modulation waveform or audio modulation can't make it out but it's it looks like it is an audio modulation so and it's a print of some sort well hang on a second hang on if if the materials are created the way i think they are which is shock from meteor impact the shock waves are going to thaw melt and then refreeze and you may actually get a frozen section of a shockwave in the matrix. Don't everybody speak at once? I just say it's possible and that, uh, that what... Uh, yeah, but see, the thing, all right, the, exactly. The thing I'm saying is either Loeb or someone else or we, this team, is going to pursue this to the ends of the planet. We're going to get public confirmation of what's in public owned lunar samples with zero national security nonsense around them. Zero. And if we don't, remember, we've got some very interesting allies now in Congress. There's a certain congressman from Tennessee named Tim Burchette, who I think might be interested in seeing this, given that he seems so intrigued with Grush's uh, comments about spaceships and bodies the Congress had never been allowed to see. I wonder what David Serena. I don't think, I don't think they'll tell her. Yeah, I don't. I don't think uh, Loeb. Okay, this is David Sarita. You hear me? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so I, I, I've studied microelectronics in great detail, and one of the things you see versus studying. Like everything under the microscope, right down to the crystal lattice on the periodic table, but we're not that small here at all, nope. has geometry. And every <clears throat> element on the periodic table falls into different um, 
hexagonal, pyramidal, cubic, you know, body-centered cubic, face-centered yes. cubic, um, rhombohedral. So this doesn't look like anything like that. No, it doesn't. When you study, like, the birth of the transistor and the crystal oscillator, the way they make oscillators and transistors, John Bardeen, Will Shockley, and Will Bratton, finalized after going through many different types of transistors, the transistor that led to today's transistors. And the way they do it is you use multiple layers of different types of crystal and conductor, and your conductor will be either paramagnetic, diamagnetic, ferromagnetic materials because you would have these PNP and NPN, negative, positive, negative, and positive, negative, positive transistors in the early days. Today's transistors are down to two billionths of a meter. That's how small they are. That's two nanometers. That's two nanometers. So what they look like when the first transistors came out are similar to item seven in that you would put wafers of your conductor and then your crystal would be um, fused in between those wafers to trap vibrations in what are called oscillators. Crystal oscillators are your <coughs> frequency generators and your microelectronics. Your transistors used to be amplifiers and then they, they got into gates which are basically storing everything from you know, colors and and data and 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 the same way like a, a magnetic hard drive works. Again, you'll have these little chambers. What interests me about this structure is from years and years and years of studying microelectronics and materials, it has all these interesting angles. And I got my protractor out. Mm-hmm. I'm zoomed w- way in. And I'm zoomed way in. And when you zoom way in in Photoshop, there are so many angles within angles within angles. Exactly. If you go Bingo. further in, like go in on all those what look like chopsticks, and they have angles within them too. Like, and it's, oh my God, this is an interesting looking thing. And those angles you don't normally see in our microelectronics, but maybe... I can understand the the power and the significance of discovering the angle between two charge plates and a crystal oscillator may be very profound and something we need to research. Because I'm measuring angles with my protractor here, and there are some pretty interesting numbers here in all these different angles. And again, my favorite. This could. Go ahead, David. Go ahead. Well, I would say from studying the history, if you study the history of the crystal oscillator and the transistor and resistors, which are you – know, have you seen those tiny, tiny little coils that were discovered in um, – I forget what part – in the Middle East they found samples of what could be um, extraterrestrial um, micro material. Micro means millionth of a meter material, and you see these tiny, tiny, tiny – clearly they are coils, and coils – Act as resistors, and resistors build up magnetic fields. Yeah, but wait, 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 David. You you just said extraterrestrial. See, if our history is a lot more interesting than we've been allowed to know, and there have been previous high-tech epics on Earth, then we could be looking on Earth not at ET samples, but our own samples, human race, previous cultures, a million years old, that everything else is gone except for the elements 
and if it's properly matrixed, maybe some geometry is preserved, maybe. But it's much less prevalent than on the moon because on Earth, as Robert said, or Ron said, or somebody said, it keeps getting destroyed and destroyed and destroyed and melted and remelted and moved around and plate tectonics and erosion. The moon is passive, a huge museum by comparison. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd like to say something oh. about number seven again. Okay. <laughs> from what from what Keith observed and what David said, and I've been thinking about this during the show, it occurs to me that there could be sounds embedded in each of those panes. And with the proper technology and equipment, we could hear sounds from each of those panes the way um, – Captain J.J. Adams heard the Krell music in uh, <laughs> <laughs> Forbidden Planet. Look, we may find an actual – we have no idea what a 1,000 pounds of rocks on the moon, most of which have not been looked at, have not that been – well, we need to rich, electron that one pane, scan microscope. Wait, wait, is it a case? Yeah, go ahead. The one pane that's got the, 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 tra- the trapezoid-type shape to it, the right. longest one, right. with the brown – that is audio modulation. We're looking at half of the waveform. If we could take that, we could probably decode it and we'll, and we'll get some kind of audio out of it. Because oh that's God. what it is. That's, all that's exactly what I meant. Well, you can induce frequencies on them and through feedback, they will resonate and you can record that. Oh, the, 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 look, you could copy that and uh, rectify op- it so it's on a plane and play it through one of your sound uh, generators. Up until tonight, our conversation, including ours, has been totally about remote sensing photographs, which show ancient civilization artifacts all over the damn solar system. But the turning point tonight is we now know where to find almost a thousand pounds of physical samples, most of which have not been touched. That was NASA's philosophy from the beginning, put most of it away for when technology advances over 10, 20, 30, you know, half a century. Well, that's where we are tonight. We have incredible new technology, which could tell us an infinite story about every one of those rocks and all the stuff in prison all we got to do is open the damn doors and get someone to do the analysis. Well, Richard, you, you have more Wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm, I'm getting overlapping. Go ahead. I was going to say yeah, it has to be more than 1,000 pounds because Edgar Mitchell brought 800 pounds himself on, a, on Apollo 14. No, 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 no. None of the missions. Yes, yes, no, yes. no. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The total wrong. poundage that we have from every mission is 842 pounds and change. But that's the overwhelming. The thing that I got from Mitchell is he brought back 800 pounds, and most of it was limestone, and it showed that there was a lot of water on the moon. Send me a link. Send me a link. Because I remember, I, I have kind of been immersed in this since Apollo. Yes, I know. So have I. And I knew Edgar Mitchell. And um, Then he obviously I misspoke. I published a monograph from the University of Tennessee. I would say that Mitchell misspoke because it's – the total is under a, th- a thousand pounds from six missions. 
See, Richard, if that geometric structure on number seven is conductor and semiconductor material, mm -hmm. the, the, the probability that it's microelectronics or even – like the first transistors were big. You, you could see everything with your eye. Oh, yeah. And then they got smaller and smaller. And this isn't – we don't know what's the size scale of this photograph. What I'm saying is if there's conductor and semiconductor layers in there, the chance that it's – it's an electronic component is very high because nature doesn't do that very often. I mean, yes, it does. It, like granite, for example, would have mica, which is a dielectric, and it'll have quartz, and it'll have even uranium in it. But, I mean, it, the way it's structured, I mean, I've looked at crystals all my life, including under the microscope, and studied them. Um, it, if, if it and if you talk to John Hutchison about this, who also has a wealth of experience, I mean, for example, a, a capacitor, right? A capacitor stores electric charges between wafers of conductor and semiconductive layers and the Casimir effect, right? You're looking at, at – at, but what's interesting about this guy is it's got all these angles in, and there. What has the Casimir effect got to do with it? Well, because when you when you when you build I, something, I have to step in occasionally. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. If Look. you build something with wafers that are really close together, they can trap an electric charge between them, and the, the semiconductor material between those those darker lines, which could be a conductor material, would create a Casimir effect. But if if the plates touch, then the charge um, dissipates. Uh, basically, dissipates. It shorts out. Yeah. But there may yes. be something about angle in micro. If you look at our microelectronics, you don't see angles like this. But maybe there's something we're missing. Well, take, take about a look angles. at number eight. My favorite of the three I put up tonight is number eight because it's. Oh, I know. It's I shadowed. It. It's incredible. It's shadowed. It's three-dimensional objects. It's not crystals. It's machines. It's fractured, broken machines. There's cylinders, there are cones, there are right angles, there are plates, there's three-dimensional right angle geometry like the one on the bottom left corner just above the Enterprise mission logo. Uh, I mean, and again, this is totally at random. I didn't pre-select. I just took bing, bing, bing and looked at them and went, holy cow. It looks like yeah, there's your size scale. One millimeter is your size scale on – it shows you in the red line at the top. So, you know, a millimeter <clears> you can see. So this – remember, when they made the first transistors and crystal oscillators, you could see them at the millimeter size scale. And then, and then as the frequencies got higher, and like, you know how many transistors there are in an Intel chip? There's like three <laughs> trillion transistors. Three Number eight is filled with three-dimensional junk. Fractured, smashed junk. I know, but if you zoom in yeah. on that with an electron microscope, we might see – like you should see what oscillators look like today in an iPhone. You, you have to get down to the billionth of a meter scale um, camera, electron microscope, to see the, the machine. I mean the machine level, the mechanistic level today – is so tiny you need electron microscopes to see it. We're looking at one millimeter here. So each one of these very interesting looking pieces 
if we could find out what each one of those different colors and the gray and the silver are made of, that's what ion mm-hmm. microbeams will let you do. Uh, and if Number you eight see, looks like a drawing you, to me. Yeah, yeah I, I, Richard, yeah. Richard, can I stick something in here? Uh, is I looked through them, but I don't see it. Do you have a an unaltered version of the picture that's got the um, replicator chip on it, so that people can see what it looked like to the naked eye? Yeah, I could put it up, but it, you know, it, it's just darker. Well, I think that's important for evidentiary things because has anyone looked at the samples the Japanese brought back from their asteroid? I was surprised not to see one of those there. I would have put one up if not. There's at least one. Uh, you know, they sh- remember they collected it out in the Australian outback and they showed everybody a tray of it before they even put it away and. Uh, I saw something that looked like that little um, replicator chip. Uh, I'm right. sorry. That's just what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ron, 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 we were at the bottom yeah. of the hour. Hang on, everyone. Of course. We'll bring Ron back and everyone else. Um, this is pretty important because I, I believe I'm getting a consensus that there's something really exquisitely unusual here. And I hear people making qualifiers like interesting. If I hear interesting one more time, it's more than interesting. We've got them. All we need now when the shouting dies away is a political process to get the truth before the American people and everybody else. And so for the last half hour, I want to talk about strategies. How do we take this to the next level? And no idea will be ruled too far out to be discussed in the next half hour. You're on the other side of midnight on an historic show where our panelists agree overwhelmingly we're looking at ET artifacts that are interesting. We shall return. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go. God, this has been an incredibly fast show. I look at the clock and I'm thinking, wait a minute, there's something wrong. It's, it's, uh, we need more time. So we all have more time. Obviously, we're going to do more of this when we get more data. And uh, I'm going to try a really interesting effort to get directly to Abby Loeb. Uh, I got close the other day with one of his secretaries. So we'll do that again and we'll open up that hailing frequency and we'll try several others. Uh, one of the things I do want to do, has there, is there anybody that has not had airtime uh, that would like to say something? And before we get into the important part, which is how do we take this to the next level? Because if this just sits here with us, it'll go nowhere. It's got to be democratized at a politically relevant level where it goes much further. And my best bet is, uh, is uh, Congressman Tim Rochette from, uh, from Tennessee. But if anybody has better ideas, lay them on the table. And I'll also give out our numbers. Let me, let me uh, give everybody a number. If you want to join our Mary Band tonight, if you've got something you want to say, a comment, a question, 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. Eight eight zero two. One more time with feeling. Nine one seven eight eight nine eight eight zero two. And I think I heard uh, Ron clearing his voice. Uh, I don't know if I can clear my voice, but yeah, I'm out. I'm out here. Uh, I'm not sure where it fits into your options there, but I'm bothered by one thing that relates to um, Dr. Loeb. His uh, his whole presentation is to convince everybody that he found something, which I'm certainly not saying he did not, uh, that he found something that was from outside the solar system. They make a big deal out of that without even mentioning Oumuamua. And this stuff was, you know, picked up locally. You know, there's no question that this, uh, this stuff was collected on the moon, on Ryugu, on Bennu that will, you know, will hopefully come down in a few hours safely in the um, uh, in uh, this great salt lake area. Uh, and I think that's important because I think part of the, the NASA pitch is that, well, there might be aliens somewhere else, but nothing's happened here. And so if they typecast this as, oh, well, this is just somebody saying that there were aliens here, then they can sort of sidestep even – uh, even solid, unarguable evidence like this uh, by saying, well, it's not from, you know, real extrasolar stuff. It's from uh, mistaken local stuff. Well, this is um, where our audience and the power of, you know, people, American citizens or global citizens comes in. Because if everybody in this audience tonight, just everybody in our audience, were to send Abby Loeb through the Galileo website, an email and saying, for God's sake, look at the damn stuff from the moon. There's machines in there and you can test. That will have an effect politically because Loeb wants to lead the charge. He wants to be the white knight riding on the horse with the big lance that leads humanity into an interstellar civilization receptivity. We are now giving him on a silver platter with gold handles and platinum edges, an extraordinary entree into that conversation to be the hero that he wants to be. The only question is, 
is he going to pick up the phone? Richard? Yeah. Yeah, is um is Laura still still on? Sure is. Good. Um I I just like to ask Laura, if you haven't already, Laura, um yeah. be sure and um you know, I think you said there was a Facebook page or a Twitter account um for the Galileo project, right? Yes, on, it's yeah. on Twitter. Um, be, be sure and let Avi Loeb know that this program is being uh, re- rebroadcast tomorrow night. Right. Yep. I'll make a note of that. Yeah, I'll do yeah. it right now, actually. And, and maybe send the direct link. Uh, Richard, will the, um, will the link to tonight's show, um, uh, will, will the audio be available at the same link tomorrow night, or will it be a different link? That's a technical question for Keith. Keith, what's the answer? Keith? It, it, we uh, we can send Laura a link. Yeah. What was, what was the question? Yeah, I'll get it. And, and I'll actually do it tomorrow uh, because it's, you know, 1, 2 o'clock in the yeah, morning. Yeah, you, you want it to mm-hmm. go in about 8 a.m. Okay. Time. I will yeah. do that. Oh, she's it, that's that's her midday, eight a.m. <laughs> right, exactly. Hey, Richard, exactly. Richard, yes. I'm zoomed in really far now, and I can see a coil. I, oh, super! Because John, I'm uh, zoomed in. I I, I think Brandenburg is left. Is John left? I'm not looking at the right screen. Which image is that? Yes, John. John had to leave. Right. Okay. When I Which first well, uh, three three days ago, when I ran this stuff by John, not knowing what he would react, the first thing he said was, "Do you see any gears?" And I said, "John, why are you back in the 18th century? Interstellar extraterrestrials do not use gears; they use friction fields and manipulation of the torsion field and all that. But if you found a coil." A coil is a coil is a coil, and you can't build electronics without coils. Yeah, I can. Super. I can. The way you do this is you take it in Photoshop, adjust your brightness. Even those bright cross sections, you can really drop the brightness down oh, to good. the structure. But in the lines, in, in all these angular um, lines in number seven in the geometry, uh, I believe – I'm looking at a coil there. Now, I've seen these tiny, tiny coils, like I said, and in, in material that has been retrieved. Um, in, in, and, I, and those coils I'll actually have to get pictures of for a follow-up because they're so small, the size scale of those coils that have been found in extraterrestrial crash retrieved material are clearly coils. They're not random um, natural kind of coiling or spiraling but i've the fact that you know the, the probably the size scale that i'm looking at right now the fact that those slices that are all like chopsticks that form all these angles i'm looking at one of them right now some of them have a, a per, violet purple cell structure mm. Which is very odd for if it was pure conductor material. It, it's got there's there's more structure within the structures. If you well if remember you the, in, the, the the so-called smart material that uh, art was analyzed years ago called arts parts. One of the things that stood out was it was made of uh, micro layers, a layered composite right. technology that can only mm-hmm. really be done in a vacuum and probably zero g. 
which indicated an extraterrestrial technology that at the time that Art got it, we didn't have on Earth. So yeah, I, those I, layers I, are conductors. Well, I can, I, I, I can well imagine that we're dealing with a technology which goes down and down and down, and each layer does something else, and there's cross-linkages and communication and pulses and timing and resonance. I mean, in other words, we're looking at a 1,000 pounds of stunning ET technology on Earth, and we know it's a drag. I, mean, I, I think I, Abby Loeb's the wrong guy. I think William Tiller, if he's still alive because he's a – and Gary Nolan, who's a, at Stanford, you need a microelectronic expert to to take this on and Avi Loeb is not that guy. I mean he he might act as a as a as a manager of the project and get microelectronic experts. Well, given but, the politically he is mm, what, what was that? Is that Ron? No, I'm on I'm on your side, Richard. I, I, I think Avi Loeb is the perfect choice. Well we start with the political and then we yeah, move and then we move in a multidisciplinary simultaneous front to contact other people that we know, David knows a hell of a lot of people. He's been around the, the, the high atmospheric, very thin stratosphere of this you know, government technology and development for decades. So whoever you can reach out to, everyone take this as a mission. Take one person who you might think could open the door to getting public analysis and confirmation, because that's the key. We don't want anybody doing all this behind closed doors and saying, oh, we didn't find anything. No way. And legally, we've got the NASA charter on our side. This has to be done in public. Also, Go ahead. Fuji is about to come out with an affordable 100 megapixel SLR. Oh, my it's, God. It's going to come out in the next few weeks. And if you photograph the same sample at 100 megapixels and you do what I'm doing now, you're going to get pretty incredible data. Keep I in mind, even... I did not parse. I did not look for the best resolution. I didn't look for you know, TIFF images as opposed to JPEG. I just quick grabbed three that looked to me eyeball. And the more I looked, the more I found. And they're totally unselected. They're random. And if you got three out of three, how much does that mean for the 842 pounds of samples? It means they're chock full of incredible breakthroughs. Incredible. Yeah, there's layers within layers, and even the resolution you have here, this JPEG. And I can see, like I say, coil structures, cell structures. I love I, number eight. My favorite tonight is number eight. Yeah. I know the others are more winsome for some, but number eight, look at all that three-dimensional geometry. That does, that's oh, not know. crystallography. That has nothing to do with the way minerals oh, yeah, melt together in a yet. volcano. You're not that far yet. Yeah, you're not down that small. You're, I, I can look at electron microscope of uranium, and th there's – you, when you see rand, it's really interesting. When you look at natural crystals, it doesn't matter what it is on the periodic table. It's it doesn't look like this. It in, until you get right down to the crystal lattice scale, yeah, you'll see geometry at that scale. That's atoms building molecules. Um, but when you at this scale, we're at one millimeter. To see this kind of geometry at one millimeter. Um, in natural crystals, yeah, of course you can see natural crystals. You can, 
but it doesn't look like this. This isn't what um, just doesn't look like this. This almost looks like scrap metal. Yes, it does because it's fragments. It's pounded. Look, back during the Cold War, remember the, the Air Force wanted umpteen million nuclear weapons? And at some point, the other side said, wait a minute. How many times can you bombard the Soviet Union before you're simply making the rubble bounce? What we have here is an example of impacts over billions of years that have made the lunar rubble bounce. And every bounce makes it smaller and fragmented and tinier and tinier. I'm surprised we have things that are of this size, given the nature of the lunar surface. But I will add, I want everybody to go to my number nine. I found this the other day, serendipitously, not looking for it at all, looking for something else. It turns out this is a 1999 total eclipse photograph taken during the eclipse across in August, August 11th, uh, Europe. And it was taken by a German uh, astronomer with the ESO observatory, taken somewhere in mid-Europe, probably in Germany. And it was taken through a Polaroid filter, two crossed Polaroid filters, which for some reason he figured out to do. And what you see there is the signature of cross Polaroids on the corona, but the moon is surrounded in this particular photo with a stunningly forward scattering light ring, which is the damn lunar dome. We're dealing with a technology in the dirt, in the regolith, in the breccias, in the rocks the astronauts brought back. We're dealing with a range of technologies from people who build little houses, you know, like Quonset huts, all the way up to the folks who redesigned the solar system and left domes around at least the moon and Ganymede for us to wander about in and wonder who did it. So we have a stunning opportunity here. I want to devote the last 15 minutes to how do we get this across the finish line? No ideas are too far out. Who wants to begin? Barbara, you're our political expert. How do we get people in the know to pay attention? (laughs) Well, uh, first, allow me to say that um, if I understood correctly, I agree with David Sarita. I don't think we should put all of our eggs into the avilobe basket. My intuition does not trust him. Well, we'll know pretty soon if he ignores this, because no scientist in their right mind can look at these photos and go, ah, nothing to see here, move along. No, that's... Wait that's, a minute, trust him in what, what sense? Yeah, yeah, okay, good. Hold, hold on, that's not what I mean. Um, what I, uh, you, you hinted at it, Richard, if I understood your, you correctly, your hint earlier in the show tonight. And that was uh, when you said, uh, you asked a question of someone else. Um, to the effect that, well, don't you think uh, the Department of Defense chose Abby Loeb to go look at this thing, to follow the track to where yeah, it crashed? Yeah, yep, yep. I, 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 I think that it is passingly strange that the U.S. Defense Department would choose Abby Loeb. Uh, well, how do you know they did? Well, that's what. Richard well, that was my hypothesis because what that are the? You know, it, yeah, that it 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 it's it's kind of like my my uh, Casablanca reference earlier. You know, the mm-hmm. other great one. You know, all the gin joints in all the world. She came into mine. That kind of thing. 
Of all I the thought people, you meant round up the usual suspects. Of all mm-hmm. the people the DOD could have given that data to, yeah. Loeb is a guy who wants to be Mr. E.T., extraterrestrial, interstellar. It's been out there since 20 – I forget when they published it, but nobody could organize the resources on a short time frame. And you know how much it takes to actually mount a million-dollar expedition to the deep sea? That's it was a million just, and a half, but he got he got it out of the working funds of Harvard. Well, that's what he claims. I heard him. Yeah, we, we don't I, know. That, that's what he's why claiming. Why would he lie? That's he, easy. Because these guys lie getting up in the morning and going to bed at night. Come on. It's second nature. You don't rise to that level without lying. Look at Carl. Carl was a double mm-hmm. agent selling me one thing and telling the public the, another thing, et cetera, et cetera. So look, I'm politically choosing Loeb to be the point person because – if he has a personal stake at being immortal in history, this will give it to him. If he's running on short orders, we will find out. If it's not him, it will be somebody else. But I would open the hailing frequencies to Loeb first because he has positioned himself on the runway to be this kind of person doing this kind of thing and making this kind of discovery. Well, so we my, just heard my, my point is, my point is, you should always have a second opinion. I just don't trust having Abby Loeb have the first and only first take on the analysis. I think there should be someone else simultaneously who's qualified. Can I suggest? Can, can I suggest somebody? Yes, I, yes. I don't know. I could be way yes. off, but I, I'd like to bring up once again. I know I've mentioned him many times, but Farouk Elbaz who is a professor at Boston University. He is an archaeologist, and he runs the department, The sorry, the Center for Remote Sensing. He was and, the one that... And, and, and he, was, he, used to, he used to work for NASA. Yeah, well, he, he, was, he was called in the, in the astronaut corps the king, which was an English version of Pharaoh, because he's Egyptian. Mm-hmm. He, Farouk Elbaz picked ultimately all the landing sites for every Apollo mission. Mm-hmm. He was head of that team. If, could, could, we, could we hear the rest of what Laura was trying to say? No, I, th- that's what I was trying to say because oh. earlier Richard said everybody pick someone. And I had contacted yeah. him, his assistant, a couple of years ago, a few years ago. I was trying to book him for the show, and then I never followed up with it because she said he had a new book coming out. I need to find out if he came out with that new book. Doesn't matter. But what is, is it? The, is it the case that because he's an academic, he's not going to be open to this sort of thing i mean he he this center for remote sensing promotes the use it says of space technology in the fields of archaeology geography and geology well farouk elbaz who i've been following ever since i was you know part of cbs and apollo and all that way back then he not only picked the landing sites but after the landings after the apollo program closed he would give interviews to Argosy Magazine or Omni or whatever public outlet, and he would hint so precisely as Emily Dickinson that there was a lot more about the lunar missions that was not yet ready to tell. Like he's been sitting on the secrets for 50 years. He might be willing now to, because it's permission time, he might be willing to go the next step, given that there's a physical set of objects that can be analyzed, no opinions, straight science, they're machines. 
Why not do a petition, Laura, at change.org to get Abby Loeb to look at it? So if you get enough people signing a petition to get Abby Loeb to look at this. Yeah, I'm on the side of not trusting Dr. Loeb. I don't know. There's just something a well, little well, shady well, about well, it, but I'm going all, after we, El Baz. We all, we all agree. Like, the, point is, the point is that sometimes politics makes weird bedfellows. Given Loeb's <laughs> position – Given what he claims he wants to do, if we offer him the opportunity and he says, I'm not associating with you ruffians, then we'll know. If he takes yeah. the information and it disappears and a paper appears in a year with his name on it and nobody else's, we'll know more. The point is it's no single point failure. I only bring him up with a challenge because he is the most visible point person who claims – on the record, this is what he wants to do. I'd like, I'd like to, to say something about this. Wait a second, Robert. Hold on. Go ahead. We've been having a pretty uh, inflammatory conversation about Loeb. I don't know that we should send this show now as I it agree. is, unless I, we well, can send him an edited show file. Because uh, I, would, I think I can counteract it. <laughs> Go ahead. I think I can counteract him, counteract what's been said, Cynthia, because I kind of like him. Well, but that doesn't discount all the conversation that's going, that's gone yeah, on. Yeah, but Cynthia, if I may say, oh. if I may say, when you reach Loeb's level, you are light years past like, and you know, being liked and not being thin-skinned and all that. He's had a million horrible things said about him. All we've said tonight is that the 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 proof will be quoting my grandmother, in the pudding. If we offer him the opportunity and he d turns it down, it means he's not as smart as he thinks he is. Well, I don't think – I think you should re-listen to this before you <laughs> say what you think. Well, who are Loeb's – who does Loeb trust himself as an associate researcher? And maybe there's a community of researchers that, that he – Well, he's made himself all part of the UAP conversation. Kind of like, well, go ahead. He he only invited some, certain people to be part of this Galileo project. So all of those people, he's got. She's right, and he put that together in in response to the fact that he was getting heat from his bosses at Harvard because since he's tenured, they couldn't fire him, but they wanted to, and that was all before it was, you know, he had made very much noise. Do we I mean, do we know, Ron, whether he was fired from the directorship of the observatory at Harvard or? He decided to resign and devote time to this. Uh, all I know is he's he has tenure. They can't fire him. Yeah, but hey, so that but, probably but, but he, would have applied to that. But well, he, I'm but, going but, on them. But he he lost his he lost his directorship of the observatory, which was his key professionally into astrophysics, space science, et cetera, et cetera, and why he got involved mm -hmm. in the Amuamua thing in the first place, given it was discovered by a telescope on Hawaii. Uh, first, well, all I can say is I'm a pretty good I'm pretty good at analyzing people when I listen to them, and when I heard him, you know, do <clears throat> another show last week, uh, <laughs> I was impressed. I was all prepared to not be. You know, I went in with my hackles up already, and uh, I thought, okay, I uh, he sounds solid to me. Yes, he's running an agenda. 
but I don't think we should discount him just because he already has connections. Well, my I'm not saying – go ahead, My Robert. comment on Loeb is if you want him to do what you want, contact the government of Israel because that's who controls him. Oh, see what I mean? This doesn't yeah. help, Robert. No, well – if you want to help from somebody, you try and be nice about them. There's no reason. You, the, no reason to try and paint them with a stain. Well, let me, a, let me, no Ron, let me kind of recontext that. We're not no. asking him for help. I'm asking him to take over the damn thing and do it. If he decides yeah, not no, to, you, if he decides not to, it will be for his own reasons that have nothing to do with whether we like him or don't like him or are suspicious or are not suspicious. We are light years beyond like. That's not what runs this secret government. Like is what not was the part title of the of this episode? The Avi Loeb Challenge? Yeah, well, the challenge is you step up to an opportunity. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. You weren't challenging. You're not challenging him to do a, a duel with muskets. <laughs> no. You know, you're saying, you're saying <laughs> will, you, will you add this to your catalog of information and uh, See, it's so your... easy if you're in the club and he's in the club. And he's got the yeah. staff. He had 20 people that helped him analyze the damn you know, meteorite from the bottom of the specific. He has the permission. And he's already broken ground. He's already in public. He's already leading. All he has to do is add this to his sample size and the, and the benefits to Loeb personally in human history are incalculable if ego plays a part in science, which it does. Yeah, it certainly does in professorship, and yet I would have signed up for his classes. The thing, is, Richard, the thing is, Richard, I think Ron nailed it. I know there's only 60 seconds left, and that is they're deflecting everything away from our solar system. This goes back to 2017 and Representative Dana, Dana Rohrabacher when he asked the NASA officials, mm -hmm. is there, was there ancient civilizations on Mars? No, 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 no. And then – Rogan was interviewing Musk. I was just going to say talk. the conversation we Bingo. must have Rogan where they talked about everything yeah. I talk about except they moved it safely seconds. five light years away. Yeah, let Andrew finish his sentence. No, Richard did it. They are pushing it oh, out of no. the neighborhood. They're afraid of what's in our backyard and on the floor. Yep. Okay, guys, we are literally at the end of the show. I thank you all for your contributions. I love the fact that everybody sees what's there. The next question, of course, is who is going to bell the cat, which means who is going to approach Loeb, and obviously that's going to be me. So until tomorrow night when we run this all again, I want to thank all my guests tonight, too numerous to mention. They're on the website, detailed biographies. Tonight, their reaction at looking at the inexplicable and seeing what is there is a memory I'm going to take forward into a very uncertain future. So until tomorrow night, we'll hear all this again, but get some more people to listen because they need to hear it first and fresh. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.